Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. Today we're going to discuss Michael Mann's classic crime film, Heat. This came out in 1995, and it didn't get a single Oscar nomination, Whoa. which is shocking. Uh, IMDb is an 8.3, and it's number 111 on the all-time IMDb user rating list. Rotten Tomatoes has this film at an 88%. Critic score, 94% audience score. Audience is what's up. Yeah, exactly, kid. Metacritic's at a 76. That's kind of lukewarm 76? for this movie. On a budget of $60 million, he grossed $187 million globally back in 1995. And this is hands down the greatest heist movie of all time, if if not just top five for sure, but in my opinion, the best. I remember we talked about the town like a month ago, and I said that the town's not even in the same ballpark per se as heat do you we watched heat yesterday what do you think about that i mean there's no town without heat yeah but the town's the town's an excellent the movie. town's awesome i ben love the town. sick yeah i i love the characters and i love the yeah. robberies and, but there is no town without heat and even when you watch heat you, you all i was thinking about all the sequences in the town <laughs> that i'm like this is the same goddamn movie <laughs> the thing with heat and i i am surprised it didn't get any practical nominations for oscars whether it be from technical categories like editing cinematography especially sound design because the craftsmanship of the film is without a doubt one of some of the best of that year and the editing is so perfect the cinematography with the anamorphic lenses and the beautiful steadicam shots fantastic action sequences is some of the best in the genre and then i would just say al pacino is phenomenal in his role and i could have seen him getting a nomination michael mann i could have seen him getting a director nomination but i'm really shocked that it didn't get any love for sound design because to this day, it is on the top of the mountain of uh, gun shootout action sequences with sound design. No other film has ever done it as good as Heat. No other, no other f film probably will do it as well as Heat. And there's just something about, especially that bank robbery shootout in L.A., the sound design of that film is so special. And every time I watch it, I'm like, I still have never felt a sequence like this, like the feeling it gives you from the sound design. So I'm shocked that it didn't get that love from the Oscars. Me too. And this is one of those movies that I wish I could experience in movie theater at some point in my life. I'll keep hoping because it would be an incredible experience. Now, just a quick synopsis of the film. What's he, it about, man? Master criminal Neil McCauley, played by Robert, Robert De Niro, <laughs> is trying to control the rogue actions of one of his men while also planning one last big heist before retiring. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Hannah Vincent, Lieutenant Vincent Hannah, attempts to track down Macaulay as he deals with the chaos in his own life, including the, the infidelity of his wife and the mental health of his stepdaughter. Macaulay and Hannah discover a mutual respect even as they try to thwart each other's plans. And this is also based on kind of a, a true story. Michael Manor wrote this original script when he was working as a film and TV writer. The st true story involves a Chicago detective in the 1960s named Chuck Adamson. Pacino would basically play that character of the film called Vincent Hanna, Lieutenant Vincent Hanna, that detective that's based off Chuck Adamson, who ironically would later collaborate with Mann on, who did collaborate with Mann on Thief, the film that starred James Ken, and then later went on to become a TV screenwriter and producer himself. Now, I'm going to run into a little background on this real-life story, if that's cool with you. I'd love to hear it. So in the 1960s, Chuck Adamson was handed a case about an ex-convict from Alcatraz named Neil McCauley, played by De Niro in the film. In 1962, McCauley had been released from prison after a 25-year sentence. Over half of his 48 years of earth were spent in jail. 
Eight of those years specifically were spent in Alcatraz, with four of them being in complete isolation. Adamson began watching him as soon as he released, not at all convinced that Macaulay was a reformed man who wouldn't begin his life of crime again. He was right. Macaulay began putting a crew together to conduct more heists with many other crimes recreated in the film that actually happened in real life. The most accurate portion of the film, however, is one without any evidence or bloodshed. Heat has its share of thrilling action moments, but the most powerful part is when Al Pacino and De Niro sit down at that diner together to make film history one of the best scenes of all time in a crime film. This was actually a reference to what happened to them in real life, and a lot of this dialogue was taken specifically from Chuck Adamson, who like put this all together from memory. It wasn't at a diner. He didn't like get in a helicopter and <laughs> chase him down on the L.A. freeway. That's, well, that's Michael Mann style right yeah. there, yeah. But what happened was Adamson bumped into him at a laundromat, and then they went and then they met and they had this conversation. That really actually happened. A lot of this dialogue was real between the yeah, two of them. Yeah, I read that they they ran into each other at the laundromat, then they walked over to a nearby deli to get lunch at the deli, and that's where they had their talk. That's so crazy. And then, obviously, they he caught him at some point. The ending of the real-life story is that... Let me, let me get down to it. In real life, it played out differently than the ending of the film. Macaulay and his crew had been researching a heist for weeks that involved robbing the National Tea Grocery Store in Chicago after an armored car made its money dropped. Little did they know that Detective Adamson and a group of cops were watching them. The entire time, Macaulay's gang committed the robbery, stealing around $13,000. But on their way out, Adamson and company were waiting, blocking every single exit. A shootout commenced with two of Macaulay's men killed. Macaulay himself tried to run, but Adamson shot him six times, leaving the thief dead. So it's actually loosely based on true events, which is wild. That's amazing. Wow, that's so fascinating. There's just something about this movie and talking about, you know, how how in real life it's kind of mundane and a little trivial, a little boring how they meet at a laundromat. But what makes this movie special is Michael Mann. And Michael Mann is a very special filmmaker. If you aren't familiar with too many of his films – I mean, if you haven't seen Thief or Manhunter, which he made before this, you should check them out. They're really remarkable films. Thief was his debut, and what like again? It's like an all-time film debut for a director. Thief with James Can, and then Manhunter with Brian Cox and Grissom from CSI. I always it's a Hannibal Lecter movie. Yeah, yeah. William, some I, I can't I always remember. I, can't, I can never remember that guy's it's called name. Grissom. Yeah, Grissom from CSI, <laughs> who's fantastic in it. But that's a really unknown and underrated adaptation of the Hannibal character and it's just phenomenal what a what a great movie but Michael Mann he always brings so much so much style to his films that wasn't really present in in American films going out of the 80s and into the 90s and he created this like new trend of how to shoot sequences how to shoot nighttime i think that his nighttime photography could be the best of all time and that's one of the reasons why he switched over to digital filmmaking, digital cameras, most notably with Collateral. And now since Collateral, he's always gone digital. The reason for that is because he's shot so many night sequences and in, in, he loves the sky at night. How you, human eye can see, it can see light in the sky. It can see like the blue hue and sometimes it's a little brighter. But generally film cameras, if you're, it, if you're exposing for the actor on a set, you're probably going to not see the sky at all. It's just going to be blacked out. And so Michael Mann has always been obsessed with trying to depict uh, nighttime sequences as close to the human eye as possible. And that's why in this film, there we'll t- talk about it in a bit, but there's a sequence where he shot it and he basically superimposed over a green screen De Niro and another actor. And then they filmed the night sky separately to under to under overexpose it to get it. And then it just doesn't, doesn't line up that well. It doesn't look great. It doesn't look great. I'm sure it looked fine in 95, but 
that was him trying to get the night sky visible because the film cameras couldn't do that if you're exposing for the subject as well as the background. And so in this film, you can see moments of that where he's trying his best to photograph the night, but he's using, you know, very the end of dusk or the very early moments of dawn and it's just such beautiful coloring in the skies and you could tell when you watch this movie as many times as I as I have and you notice how he's shooting and the timing is everything with the style of his of his lighting techniques because they're shooting this film had zero scenes shot in sound stages at all it was all on location the entirety of the film that's actually very rare to not shoot anything in a sound stage because he's a big believer in shooting in real locations and he understands that timing is everything for the lighting and for the style and so you have the shot of Macaulay coming home after the opening of the film and he got, goes into his Malibu uh, home and then he, there's just this beautiful blue light like just before the sun comes up there's just like this five minute window of this light and there's another sequence where he and John Voight meet in the parking garage on like the 10th story of the parking garage and there's a beautiful warm light in the background like just as the sun's about to set completely and it's like so close to there being no light but Michael Mann understands that timing is so important with the style that he's creating and you can only imagine like they probably went through many takes of those sequences planning it out and then we're like okay we have five minutes let's try and get this shot a couple of times that's probably how they were doing it on set and i guarantee you he planned it to the t like okay now's the moment now we're going to shoot the scene for real I'm, I'm sure they rehearsed it a bunch of times but speaking about in real life how and when the two men met in real life it was accidentally at a laundromat and then they went to a deli it's kind of boring but michael mann understands that great filmmaking you need to imbue so much style and so much energy and creativity and so what's he do for his meetup al pacino hops in a helicopter tracks down the the police detail following Vincent, pulls him over, and then they go, he, he pulls him over, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? And then they meet at the restaurant. It's just so cool. It's just the way he approaches it. I'm sure many other filmmakers would have tried to make it accurate and like, hey, let's run into each other at a laundromat. But Michael Mann knows like, you know what? I'm going to make this crazy cool, so memorable. I'm just going to do a fucking helicopter. Why not? Sexy yeah. as hell. Absolutely. And it's Neil is played by, Pacino, by De Niro you. and Vincent is Al Pacino. And Heat is undoubtedly a blueprint in, of so many crime films to come after it, as well as the impact not just in the film industry, but also in real crime and real robberies. So many robberies were influenced by Heat. The explicit nature of several of the film scenes were set as the model of a ton of robberies since its release included armored car robberies in South Africa, Colombia, America, Denmark, Norway, most famously in 1997, the North Hollywood shootout in which Larry Phillips Jr. and Emil Matasereno robbed the North Hollywood branch of the Bank of America, similarly to the film, were confronted by the LAPD and they left the blank. The bank, this shootout is considered one of the longest and bloodiest events in its type in this type of American police history. Both robbers were killed, and 11 police officers and 7 civilians were injured during the shootout. Heat was widely referenced during the coverage of the shootout because it happened just two years after the film's release. Not to mention, in L.A. Yeah. The influence of this movie on cinema is huge and still relevant. You can't watch this movie and not constantly think of The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan. This film 
Nolan used as kind of an influence for the style of the filmmaking for The Dark Knight, specifically the way he portrayed Gotham City, the way he portrayed good versus evil, these two obsessive characters fighting for what they believe in. Not to mention some great references like the look at me by the Joker. Look at me. That's in heat. He says, look at me a few times before he pops Wangro on the head. The cello in the background with these ominous yeah. city shots following cars and trucks. Armored trucks. The flipping of the 18-wheeler in Dark Knight Rise. In the Dark Knight. There's no way Christopher Nolan doesn't flip that 18-wheeler. And also hit the armored truck into the water with that underground sequence, action sequence of the cars. There's no way he does any of that if he's not obsessed with the movie Heat where they put the armored car on its side and and hit it sideways with the 18-wheel truck. These crazy action set pieces that man was doing in the 1990s. Also, the behind-the-back shots are so relevant and prevalent Following shots, inside yeah. Christopher Nolan's films. They're all over Michael Mann's movies and this movie is especially. Also, using Al Pacino in Insomnia is basically the same character <laughs> as in Heat. <laughs> not, not the same. It's a little different. <laughs> a little different. <laughs> and also, I was... Saw so many influences it probably had on the Jason Bourne franchise when I was watching this movie with all these big set pieces and opposing forces, kind of how you would do that in a city landscape because many of the Jason Bourne action set pieces are practically done in exteriors of huge cities. And also there's a couple more references for The Dark Knight in terms of uh, Harvey Dent's office and many in the mayor's office. They're on high levels of skyscrapers and you can see these floor to ceiling windows and then you just see the city in the background you see that a couple of times in heat and nolan wanted to make it feel like oh you're seeing gotham in the daytime and it looks like a real city and then also a couple of scenes and sequences in parking garages like that first big action sequence in the parking garage with scarecrow's deal gone wrong it's very reminiscent of just uh, neil meeting his fence nate just like in the parking garage. So there are so many references. And I really noticed the uh, the overhead helicopter tracking shot of uh, one of the trucks in this movie. And it just reminded me of the police detail in The Dark Knight. So uh, it's also influenced Nolan's filmmaking and style in terms of shooting with anamorphic lenses, shooting on 35mm film, shooting in uh, desaturated quality. The Dark Knight looks much different from Batman Begins in terms of its color palette. And it looks very similar to uh, the heat where you have uh, desaturated balanced tones, but then you have a lot of blues added for some style and color. So he definitely used heat as a major influence for The Dark Knight. And I mean, blue is kind of the color in marketing for The Dark Knight versus oh, yeah. like orange for Batman Begins mm-hmm. and Oppenheimer for coming out this year as well. And this I guess is... I never liked the Batman Begins posters, honestly. I think they're pretty sick. No, I never liked them. Pretty sick. They're okay. This is an airtight script as well from Michael Mann and... It has so many moments where the average screenwriter or the average movie you see today would just be bombarded with silly, random dialogue that's so unnecessary. And you could see all the spots where someone would put a one-liner in here and there, and then Michael Mann's dialogue and these characters' dialogue. It's just so realistic, and they say so much with saying so minimal, as well as great lines that you still remember to the day. And there's there's a point in this film where there's over six minutes of no dialogue in the film, this is the the chase between... The climax. Yeah, the climax of the movie. Yeah. This is after Vincent spots Neil, and he chases after him. Al Pacino says a line, give me that shotgun to the cop, which is sick. Then he just cocks <laughs> it. And then he chases after Vince. I mean, he chases after Neil. And then Vincent chases 
kneel into the airport tenant airplanes right <laughs> airplane hangar the airplane hangar <laughs> incredible large-scale practical filmmaking here yeah. just like christopher they're Nolan. really running past planes robert de niro yeah. ran in front of multiple giant 747s or not 747s wherever the airplanes were big back ones. then. Was a big huge one. airplanes yeah. at an airport yeah it's pretty silly how easy it was to break into an airport back then by the you just hop off heads and you're there <laughs> but there's six minutes and th- 22 seconds with no dialogue in this entire part of the sequence and that's rare for a movie especially one of the scale with so many characters so many great actors and high stakes performances and i would say it's rare to make it happen in the climax of your movie to have no dialogue during the both stories have leading to have been leading to this moment and man chose to just go minimal dialogue and shoot it kind of like a silent film in a lot of ways it's really fantastic it works so well so much tension is built and the runtime of this movie is two hours and 50 minutes so it's almost three hours long but there isn't a single ounce of fat on the film. It is perfect. It you don't you can't trim any of it out because it all works and not a minute is wasted and not for a second. When every no matter how many times I've seen this film, it never feels long. It never feels like it drags. It feels like it's earned every bit of character, every bit of dialogue, every sequence, and it's really impressive because you could see easily you could see it easily getting trimmed down to two hours and just being like you know a kind of a second rate action thriller, but. All of the the extra hour, man adds so much character and so much detail to every person in the film. It wouldn't feel like an epic if, if it was two hours. It wouldn't feel like the same kind of quality of a film with any substance if it was cut down to the standard action runtime. And Michael Mann, what he does with that extra runtime is he makes you really understand who all these people are. You don't necessarily maybe empathize with everyone, but you really get a sense for this ensemble because it is an ensemble. Yes, it's Pacino and De Niro's movie, but it very much so centers around many other characters as well. And even like even like some of the side characters, they have sizable amounts of dialogue and sizable amounts of screen time. Michael Mann never makes you feel overwhelmed as an audience member. He never makes you feel confused about what's going on. There are a lot of moving parts and there are a lot of major roles of, of players in this cast, but he does a phenomenal job with pacing and balance, which ends up just benefiting the film so much more. And I think it could, it would not work better if you shaved off even any bits of this film. It's just pitch perfect every beat of it. What I love so much about it is it's obviously this high-regarded crime film. We all love so many great action pieces. The shootout so memorable. The diner scene's incredible. Those are really like what people pull off from the film when they think about it, the great heists, the great action, the great gunfights, yeah, and the, and the, the climax, big, the big scene. even the yeah. hockey mask robbery sequence in the opening. That's really terrific. And just De Niro's character and Pacino's character. But this movie is full of relationships and character building, like you said, but specifically many relationships. There's the relationships between, I have a whole list of actually each couple. We got There's a lot of couples, Chris yeah. and Charlene, Neil and Justine, Neil and Edie. These are the three main relationships that are explored throughout this film. And man gives them a lot of time of not just dialogue, but in terms of general action for the characters to build up who they are. And the cast is absolutely absurd in this movie. Besides Pacino and De Niro, we have Val Kilmer as Chris Chahalers, John Voight as Nate, Tom Sizemore as Michael Chirito, a.k.a. Slick. Diane Vernora as Justine, Amy Brenneman as Edie, Ashley Judd as Charlene Saharalis. Then we also have uh, McKelty Williamson as one of the cops, Druckard, West Studi Casales, Ted Levine as Bosco, 
Dennis Haysbert, Donald Breeden, a.k.a. Mr. President from 24. William Fitchner as Robert Roger Van Zant, who I guarantee Nolan cast as the bank manager yeah. in The Dark Knight as a reference to Heat. He's, he said specifically that he cast Fitchner because it was an Easter egg nod to Heat. Natalie Portman, uh, really young in this movie. She's probably 11 or 12 years old as Lauren Gustafsson. Tom Noonan, Kevin Gage. Hank Azaria is Alan Marciano, the guy who's having an affair with Charlene. So, I mean, is it Charlene? Yeah, Charlene. Yeah. And, then, yeah. <laughs> and then Danny Trejo. Just think Chris and Charlene, CH, they're both blonde. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to remember. Danny Trejo plays Trejo in this movie. So the cast is absolutely absurdly stacked and... The characters are really what makes this, and I would love to just break down each of these characters kind of one by one. And Absolutely. Starting with, I think, is obviously Neil and Vincent. So we have Lieutenant Vincent Hanna, played by Al Pacino, and Ian McCauley. And what I love about this film is getting the openings of both characters and how different they are they and the where life. they are yeah. in, at this at in their perspective of life. So Neil, his opening is on a heist, basically. He's stealing that ambulance. He's That's not part of the heist yet, but he's stealing that ambulance from that hospital. And then Vincent, his opening is making love to his wife. And it kind of gets you in the headspace of where they're at in their relationships or where they're at in their lives because even though Vincent's relationship and his marriage is about to crumble, he's still making love to his wife in this opening. It's a really interesting way to open them both up rather than Vincent opening on the job, opening with his wife, which makes him late for work because he's focused really, they're both solely focused on obsession of their pursuits. But I found it really interesting to open with that with his wife versus him opening opening on a job. That's, well, it's also, first of all, it's a very realistic sex scene. It just feels, it feels authentic. Your favorite, authentic. your favorite word. But whenever I watch the scene, I'm like, that seems like it's not just two actors who feel uncomfortable and like, okay, let's do it. It just, it felt like a real couple. And Michael Mann shot it really beautifully. It's really, un, really understated and very simple. I would say that you, you also get to tie in the next couple of scenes for Vincent as his day in the life of setting up uh, what's going to happen before the the first heist takes place. But both men, they are extremely similar, but also very different. You can tell that with Edie, it's the first woman that Neil has led into his life in a very long time. He seems like someone who doesn't even really necessarily crave intimacy until he meets a person here or there throughout his life. Uh, he seems to be strictly monogamous, and it looks like he's never really pursuing that until it just accidentally kind of happens. Whereas Vincent, he's on his third marriage, you can tell... Just from that information, he's probably always had a girlfriend or a fiance or a wife at every moment of his life. He's probably never been single for very long. And so you could say that Vincent kind of relies on having a person in his life to like a partner of having a woman in his life to keep himself kind of steady in a way. Whereas Neil is so extremely disciplined and focused on what he's doing. He really is like a, a lone wolf in a lot of ways and doesn't he doesn't necessarily need someone to fall back on. He doesn't want someone to go home to. He doesn't really necessarily have a home that's very comfortable. Like his Malibu home is empty. Chris says, you need, you need to get some furniture. You can imagine how long he's probably had this home and still hasn't bought any furniture. He, he makes an excuse of saying, I haven't really had time. I'll, I'll get, get around to it when I have time. I'm sure he's had that home for years now. And then Chris is probably like, dude, this, you still don't have furniture? What the hell? His other home does have furniture. That's clearly where he spends most of his time. But it seems like a home isn't, he doesn't really look for having someone in his life. 
And it wasn't until Edie where that kind of changed for him, changed in his character, but still it never completely changed him. He still ended up resorting back to who he truly was and who he always was at, at the start of the film. So I'd say in that way, both characters are extremely different where Vincent probably has always needed a partner in his life, whereas Neil is always preferred to be alone. You could probably chalk it up to him spending so many years in prison. We find that out in the diner scene because they've also both done research on each other. They're very professional. They do extensive prep for whatever job they're taking on. And Neil, I mean, Vincent tells Neil, like, you did seven years here and then four years here. So you can imagine he said a good amount of that was in the hole. So he's used to isolation and he's, and it's probably created this creature of, introverted behavior as well as he's so calm and methodical he's probably he probably developed this new personality while spending so much time in isolation in prison that's probably why he feels so comfortable alone now that actually ties into his philosophy his idea and then he expresses a couple of times he says never let yourself get uh too close to someone basically if you can't walk out on in 30 seconds when the heat's on you if you can't uh, abandon whoever you're with uh, that you need to avoid that He's never really understood Chris and his devotion to Charlene because he's never had that in his life. And so he says he, – he tells Chris after, after Charlene like, and him had, a, had that fight in the opening act and then Chris slept, crashed at his place. He's like, I mean, I don't understand you. He's like, remember our, that, old, that guy? He told, he told us never get, never get committed to someone that you can't like, leave when 30 seconds flat. And then Chris says, well, the sun sets and rises by her saying that she is my everything and I can never leave her. Neil never has never understood that about him. And he doesn't realize that intimacy can be probably the strongest pull in a person's life until he meets Edie. And then it gets to the point where he can't go anywhere without Edie. And he actually vulnerably opens up in the third act of the film on that hillside telling Edie, like, you can go if you want. Uh, but I can't, I don't see the point in doing anything without you by my side. So that was such a uh, – he's opening up in a way that he never has before. And then for the first time, he probably understands Chris's point of view with staying with Charlene. I think that also Neil always – he's always misinterpreted that sentence in terms of – he always has probably thought that it meant a relationship or a person. Don't, But because he says don't get attached to anything that you're not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds or less if, if you feel the heat around the corner – because by the end of the film, we find out what Neil's biggest weakness is. And we find out that he has an attachment that he's not willing to walk away from when he feels the heat. Because he's in the clear in the third act of this film. He's got Home new free. identity. He's got plane tickets on this secret plane that's going to come and take them wherever they have to go. He's got money. They're going to go to hopefully New Zealand. That's his plan to take Charlene. Charlene finally agrees to come with him. So he's got it in the bag. They're on their way to the airport in the car. They're clean. They're good. They're free. Home it's the free. home stretch. Home free. Good luck, brother. It's great. <laughs> and then what holds him back? What can't he walk away from? It's revenge. It's not a person. It's a feeling. It's getting vengeance for what Wayne Grow did to his crew and to his friends and basically to his life because Wayne Grow was the hothead that killed the cop and the security in the opening heist, which led to them making their situation, instead of just being a robbery, a triple homicide, which made more heat 
be put on top of them, which messed up their whole entire situation. Also, Wangro escaped from the diner situation where they were going to straight up murder that guy really efficiently, by yeah. the way, with those trash bags taped inside the oh trunk my gosh, of Trejo's fantastic. car. How many times have they done that? And then, yeah, <laughs> oh but, my God. How many times <laughs> have they killed dudes in parking lots of diners? Oh my God. And then Wangro kind of just being this pain in his ass and finally wanting to get a revenge on him because he's messed so much of his life up. He can't let that go. So, at the end of the film, we find out that Neil actually has attachment to something that he can't let go, and it's revenge. That's a great point. He couldn't he couldn't let him go. He had to go back. He, he was in the clear, and he knew how risky it was. He, and I'm sure he knew that cops were on, on his tail and watching him, but he still couldn't resist the urge and desire to go back there. I, and I suppose that goes back to my point where Edie nearly completely changed him into a better man, but ultimately... It didn't. It didn't fully click. He still walked out on yeah, her. He still if he, saw, he felt the heat around yeah. the corner. He saw Vincent coming. See yeah. you later, Edie. So he never like she. She almost changed him, but he ended up choosing his his who he was. He cho- he ended up choosing his past life, and he just set himself up for an, an inevitable death. With it was going to happen inevitably. There's no way he was going to get out of that airport alive. And then Neil is is portrayed in such a great, subtle, nuanced way in many regards in the film. And De Niro is. Really outstanding. I, 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 we got a comment today of someone in a De Niro clip saying that he does the same role every time. And it's like, it, this, every character is so different and his performances are so nuanced and so brilliant. I, it kind of drives me nuts when people say he does the same thing every time. And even in this case, where he's playing a criminal, he's played a criminal obviously many times before, but Neil is so different from any other criminal he's played. It's just his behavior. The slick back hair, the goatee, the way he carries himself. He's so rigid. He's so quiet. He's so stoic. He's very reserved. But he is com- in complete control at all times. He always knows what he's doing. He always is extremely prepared. And he's extremely neat and orderly. And all of his time put being put away, he's he's established this very clean uh, like living style. Like just like subtle details, like when he hand when Edie's in, asleep in bed in the morning and he leaves and he doesn't want to wake her up, he gets her a glass of water and puts it by the bedside table. But he wraps the glass of water; it's already wrapped. But he wrapped the glass of water in paper nap in a paper towel. But he folded it in like a very fancy way. It's just a paper towel, but like that's just the way he would. That's the way he he holds a glass of water with this like really fancy paper towel makeshift thing around just a glass of water and. All of, the, all of the collars that he wears are extra starchy because that's what it would have been like for the inmates and how they had to m- make their clothes very starchy with the materials they had in prison. So that's why his clothes look like very rigid and very solid. He's just – I just love the precise detail he has towards everything. He's very quick to judge people and he's very quick to be suspicious. He is hard tr- to trust someone like when he meets Edie – she just says hi to him casually at the bar of the restaurant and he's like suspicious of her. He's like he's like glaring at her. And it takes him like a minute to realize, oh, this is just a normal person talking <laughs> to me. You know what I mean? He's always he's like, what, are you, what are you interested <laughs> in my business, lady? <laughs> lady? Lady, what makes you so interested in my business? <laughs> <laughs> it's just fascinating. And he's just always on. Always on. And he's never he can never it's hard for him to just like turn off. You know what I mean? He can't help himself. And I, I think De Niro portrays it in such a wonderful way. It's just a fantastic performance. And I just love his the attention to detail, detail how every action sequence, 
He knows what he's doing. He's in command. He's very experienced. And also, there's little details, just like the folded napkin over the water glass. He has a Marine tattoo. Like, he's a former Marine. Same thing with Vincent. They're both former Marines. You don't hear this crazy backstory about him. You don't hear this long list of things that he's done in the past, like so many other filmmakers or writers would do. It's really his actions and what they're showing you that really inform the character in so many brilliant ways. And you already know that this guy knows what he's doing, extremely capable. And also, he has a plan for the future. In this last bank job, he saw it as an opportunity for him to finally finish what he's doing and be able to retire out in Fiji and live it up. And I think I know why so many people, especially on the internet, especially on the Tiki Talks, the Twitters, the Grams kid, that they always call out people like De Niro, even... People call it Pacino. Yeah. But a lot All he of, does is scream. A lot of great actors who you've seen in so many movies, and I think I know why they always say they play the same character, and it's probably because they believe that maybe the pinnacle and the best actors are the chameleon actors, but it's a completely, completely different style. You don't have to be a chameleon actor to be a great actor. You don't have to be Daniel Day-Lewis Day yeah. and disappear into every single role that you're in, and whether it's in physically disappear like Christian Bale and put on all this weight to be a character, even though De Niro's done that. I mean, he has done it. Raging, yeah. Have you seen Raging Bull? All you gotta do is watch that. So when people look at their careers, they don't see all their great movies, but they just like chalk it up to a handful. And they think that same thing with Scorsese. They think he only does gangster movies. And I'm because... sorry, a handful that they haven't even seen. Yeah. Most of the time. Yeah. That's what I said. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, so they haven't seen these movies. They haven't seen these characters. And I think they assume that the best actors are the chameleons, but it's really, there's no difference between being a great actor if you're a chameleon or just kind of just doing nuanced things for your characters to disassociate yourself from from other characters because, like you said, he's he's so skilled at creating people for movies that, yeah, it's De Niro. You see him in a ton of movies, so obviously you're gonna assume he's playing. He's, oh, he's the same Very guy. Very familiar. Every movie. Yeah, he's got the De Niro voice. He's not changed. He's not doing Southern accents or really ex- except for in um, Cape Fear. He's got a great accent, like. If you point out his most flamboyant characters, yeah, he's like kind of disappearing into that role a little more. But it's the nuances that yeah. are as big a detail as a huge weight gain. I would say Denzel's another another actor who you can say the same thing about where he isn't so much a chameleon. He doesn't transform everything about himself like Gary Oldman, like Meryl Streep will do, like Daniel Day-Lewis will do, like Christian Bale will do. But he is without a doubt hands down one of the greatest actors to ever live and still is and i think that de niro and denzel i've seen it said in our comments about denzel as well and they people have said like he sounds the same in every movie and he doesn't even change his voice it's like he's still without a doubt like such a remarkable talent of an actor since day one it's really unbelievable that guy's career and what he's been capable of and I think that De Niro and Denzel have a lot in common in that regard. But that being said, I still think that De Niro is a chameleon in in many of his roles. And it just it might just be obviously his roles as mobsters, they're not looking or sounding that different because they'll have like similar backgrounds from similar areas. So he's not gonna change the voice that much. But then I mean there's plenty of movies you have his you can watch. King of Comedy is nothing like Anything he's ever done, you know what I mean? This completely different accent, different. That's like a different human being. When I watch the King of Comedy, Rupert Pupkin, so he does do that. But I think that his most famous roles are just the characters will have similarities. It's probably what it is. But what's interesting about Neil is 
he always puts the work first, and that's really what defines him. And that's another reason why he's never really probably been in an intimate relationship until Edie. I'm sure he's been been laid before, but I'm so, I'm talking like wanting to pursue a partnership with another another person with Edie. I think this is the first time he's ever felt that before. He's always put work first. And an example of that is Chris and Charlene having their trouble. And then what does he do? He makes that phone call while simultaneously spying on her. And he sees uh, the the man leave the motel, sees her in the hotel. And then once Hank Azari's character drives off, he bombards her into the hotel and he basically tells her, you are going to give him one more shot. You will give Chris one more shot. He's not doing it to save the marriage. He's not telling Charlene to go back to Chris to improve their relationship. He's doing it to keep Chris even keel, to keep him focused, to keep Chris from losing control of himself because they have the biggest job of their careers ahead of them in a few days. And he can't have Chris be all messed up in the head because his wife left him. So he's... On the surface, it might look like, oh, maybe he's trying to do something good here and trying to repair this marriage. He's doing it to protect the job and in himself by making sure that Chris's life doesn't fall apart right before their big bank heist. And then we have Lieutenant Vincent Hanna, played by Pacino, and these characters are so similar as well as different. You can easily see, had the other one been put in the other person's shoes, they might have led the exact same paths of life because... Their whole entire purpose are purposes are devoted to obsession of their crafts. For Vincent, it's being a detective, catching killers and robbers. And for Neil, it's heists and scores and always getting a, a bigger score and always robbing whatever it is to, to make money. And Just not 7-Elevens. Not 7-Elevens. <laughs> they're both wicked smart. But I like how as introverted as Neil is, as quiet, as calm, controlled as he is, Vincent's like the exact opposite. He's always talking. He's shit talking. He like talks like jazz. Like Pacino talks like jazz. He's like all over the place. He he's improvises the fucking. He's like, sh- he's he's like so much. He's almost like singing while he talks. Like yeah. Italians, it's kind of like you're singing while you're speaking. It's he's kind of like that in this movie, especially. It's very interesting. There's like a a rhythm to the way he speaks. It's really fantastic to watch. And Al Pacino recently revealed in a GQ interview that Hannah actually frequently chips cocaine throughout the film though it's never portrayed on screen fully and to quote Pacino he said there is a scene where it goes by really quick which never got into the film and I've always wanted to say it just so you know where some of the behaviors coming from he said to a laughing crowd that understood that clearly yeah Hannah seems like the type who recreationally uses cocaine to keep him angsty to keep him on edge and he constantly is on his third marriage because he's so obsessed with catching crooks and they also have so many similarities. What I what I think is really great that the production did with this film, in addition to Michael Mann's, obviously, his decisions, is both Vincent and Neil are almost constantly, especially Vincent, are always in suits. They're never seen in anything out of professional attire. If Neil's not wearing professional attire like a suit, it's because he's undercover as like an ambulance driver or he goes undercover as a security guard at the hotel. But they're both always portrayed in suits. They're never like in T-shirts. They're never in jeans. They're never in pajamas, shorts, nothing. They are always dressed very sharp and very professional because that's how they approach every facet of their life. This might tie into the the cleanliness and orderliness of being a former soldier and a former Marine, which is I think is really interesting. I think it's excellent for the production characters. Plus, it looks cool. It looks cool! But he also is a former Marine. There's a Marine plaque in his office. They bring it up in dialogue for a second, I think. 
I think with with the Vincent, that Vincent, I mean Neil brings it up about Vincent, I believe. Nate does. Nate, John okay, Voight's yeah, character yeah, yeah. mentions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great scene where Nate's warning him, like this guy, he's like the real deal. He gunned down like another famous criminal mm-hmm. years ago, and he's like he's he's thirsty for you, like he wants you, and like he says, like he's he's just on you, like. He gets hot when they're yeah, when he, he realizes that they're watching them at that container. He's like, oh, he's like, oh man, he's is, good. Is this he's guy really, something? Or is no, he he's something? good. You want to know what they're watching? Us. They're watching us. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Mister Roberts. <laughs> you can tell that Pacino did so much improvisation in this film, and he's just like all over the place, like you said, with like this energy, with this vibrancy. But he's he is like that in a lot of his roles, even like his even as Jimmy Hoffa in The Irishman, like he had so much energy, but like. Just that you can see all these lines that he probably threw in there, and I'm sure Michael Mann was just like having let him have a field day with go go nuts and do whatever you want, man. Like please, just like if you have Al Pacino, just let him do Al Pacino what Al Pacino does, and that's just act his ass off. She has a great ass. <laughs> Improvised line. <laughs> you have her head all the way up it. <laughs> Some more similarities between the characters. Something that's actually really interesting that they put in as a similarity that people might not notice is both characters, Vincent and Neil, checked their guns to make sure they had a chambered round before breaking down a door. Now, this is a trademark of the character Nick Stone in a series of novels by Andy McNabb, who was technical weapons training advisor on Heat. Although it's not an uncommon thing to do with a handgun, it is rarely given such visual prominence in films. So they actually did that to kind of show another similarity between both these characters. Maybe it was something they learned when they were in the Marine Corps. Well, speaking of the handguns, the detail of the guns actually gives a lot of personality to the character. And then there's obviously that painting that everyone posted online about it, like that famous painting of uh, a man standing at the windows with his back to us with the with the water behind and in front uh, of the distance and... Uh, Michael Mann recreated a similar shot for Neil in this film. It's one of the best shots of the film. It's really beautiful, but uh, the camera also tracks down to... He puts his pistol and keys down on the table, and I think that Michael Mann purposely had him put both those things down because it's just saying that he... This is who he is. This is who his life is. He never hangs up the hat to say... uh, There's a reason why he doesn't hang his keys up separately, or he's purposely having him put the keys there with the gun to show that... That is who he is. That's his life. He has no home outside of being a criminal. That is who he is through and through. When he comes home, he's still a criminal. When he leaves the house, he's still a criminal. And I think that's why they purposely showed that the gun with the keys literally touching each other on the table. Everything's done purposely. And then look at Vincent's gun. It adds so much detail to his character. He's got a white pistol grip. It's so flashy. And not what you would expect for a detective. And it's it's just like a great character detail. I'm, I'm sure, I'm guessing it was, it was Pacino's idea to add that white grip to the gun. It's so uncommon, but just like adds to the personality of the character. And it might be confusing for viewers if you aren't familiar with law enforcement. Why is Vincent going to a murder call? I thought he was, he was I thought he investigated armed robbery. So he's a lieutenant detective and a lieutenant detective of his position. They're overseeing the major crime unit. We have actually a person of our family who actually is a similar thing, and they oversee like an entire division of crimes. And so that's why he reports to both that murder as well as the robbery because he basically is an overseer 
of all these major crime investigations. Exactly. I was going to bring that up. Oh, nice. You beat me to it. I wrote, gotcha. I wrote it down when I was watching because I was thinking the same same thing. People probably get confused. I thought he was a robbery Well, yeah. Guy. Well, that's the thing. is like the, the film is so accurate, it might be confusing for some people. And even the way that the cops, detectives speak is just so accurate to real life. They're not like spelling things out for the audience. Like, remember, so in the opening, at, when the cops, when Pacino and the other detectives are investigating the crime scene, with the dead security guards next to the armored truck. And then Vincent tells the others, hey, I want you to call all of our fences that we know. You call, you get in touch with these two guys, you get in touch with these two, di- two guys. They want to contact all of the fences that they know of in the area. And a fence is Nate's character. He's a fence. So John Voigt's character is a fence. And a fence is a person who sells stolen, uh, stolen goods uh, for a, a good price. And that's what he's doing. He's like a middleman right here. He's being the middleman for... Uh, Neil and his crew, and then Van Sant for buying his bonds back. You can see probably that Nate's been working with Neil for years, selling the goods that they steal. If they're doing like a robbery of like jewels or diamonds, or what have you, Nate, they'll give them to Nate, and Nate will sell them on the black market. So that's how they're getting their money back if they're stealing something physical, like an object, rather than just petty cash. So a fence is like the middleman of criminals and buyers for things that are stolen. Let's get into some more characters. How about Chris Chehalis, who's played by Val Kilmer, and he is Neil's basically right-hand man. You can kind of like little sort brother, of brother, big brother, little brother relationship here. And Keanu Reeves was actually originally signed on to play Chris in this film. Coming off speed. However, he lost the part because Val Kilmer was able to squeeze this in while he was making Batman Forever. And Val Kilmer was also so experienced with heavy weaponry and ammunition, having earlier been taught to use all varieties of guns by his father and grandfather on his home ranch and at Juilliard, that he assisted the technical assault team members in teaching the other cast members how to comfortably maneuver and use their weapons during the lengthy practice sessions. Now, Chris, this character is just beyond cool. He's just the haircut. Like, few guys could pull off a ponytail. (laughs) Freaking Val Kilmer! I knew it was, it. I knew it was hair extensions. Oh, it was make, it because he was filming the, the yeah, Batman, Batman film? Yeah, he's Batman. not wearing long hair. It's <laughs> Bruce Wayne. I, I was like, I knew it was hair extensions. You're right. Good point. But he, it still looks good. He kills it in this role. He's really terrific. Really nuanced performance and just lots of great range of of acting he's doing in this role. And he's obviously in this downward spiraling relationship and marriage with Charlene, played by Ashley Judd, as well as trying to maintain his role in. Vincent and, and Neil's crew and trying to help him do all the recon and, and all the thievery of the film. And now Chris, he's also maybe my favorite part of the shootout. I think what he did in that shootout is it's so incredible to watch. And there actually there's a lot of really cool information about the shootout that we'll get into a little bit later on, but specifically dealing with Chris and Val Kilmer. He was thrilled to learn that the moment in the gun battle scene where he runs out of bullets and rapidly changes his magazine is regularly shown to Marine recruits as an example of how to perform the action properly. And in June of 2002, the scene involving the shootout after the bank robbery was shown to United States Marine recruits at San Diego as an example of the proper way to retreat while under fire. So this film has so many great realistic and authentic tactics involved, as well as just what an armed robbery would really be like and what how robbers really think, because that's what Michael Mann does so well with his crime films, especially in Thief. 
he does so much research. He gets so many consultations and so, so many consult, consultants of real criminals to help with the script, to help with how would a robber break into this door? And like, I love how in the movie they like they hammer in that big chisel and they pop open the lock. Like I'm sure he learned that from a criminal. And even Danny Trejo, who's in this film, he plays Trejo in this movie. He wasn't originally part of the cast as Trejo. He was actually, before he was hired to play the role, he and Edward Bunker, a writer, were hired to be armed robbery consultants since they both did time for those crimes and knew the ins and outs of performing such crimes. When Michael Mann spotted Danny, Mann introduced him to De Niro, Pacino, Val Kilmer, and John Voight, where they discussed the Cops and Robbers movie. After the meeting, Michael Mann just gave Trejo the role. So Trejo was originally a, a robbery consultant on Heat. Now he's Machete. You know, he has <laughs> over 400 acting credits. I love it. It's so cool. It's insane. And... Chris is a very different person from the other members of his crew, uh, specifically Neil. And then Mike has his stuff together, and Trejo seems to have his shit together as well. Because Mike seems to be like a family man. Trejo, we're not sure if he has kids, but he definitely seems to be in a in a happy got a partnership. They got Anna. <laughs> My Anna's got oh, Anna, man. Don't leave me like this, Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> He's great in that scene. He's great. And so, but Chris is, the he's like the... The black sheep of the crew. He's in gambling debts. He's a gambling addict, we learned from Charlene, and he's desperate for money. That's why he's always happy to do a new score. That's why he wants to do the bank score so badly. And him and Charlene are in a bad way because he keeps spending all of their money. And I read a little background about the characters because uh, Michael Mann actually even wrote a sequel novel to Heat. So there's a Heat book, a Heat 2 book. And he also did plenty of character background for each character. And he said he'd said in an interview that Charlene and Chris met when he was in Vegas and he had a really hot streak at the blackjack table and she was a high priced uh, escort uh, escort. And then he they had a, a night together and then he, he basically asked her to be with him. And then they she left with him. She left Vegas to be with him in L.A. So that's how they met in Vegas. And so ironically, they met when he was gambling and their lives falling apart because he's a gambler. And he seems to be really rock solid when it comes to the work and someone who Neil trusts and cares about. Because when when Chris gets shot at the shootout, like Neil is like, I, he does everything he can to save his life and he's desperate to save him. I think there is definitely a big brother, little brother relationship between the two of them. Oh, that's a great point for yeah. not leaving something 30 seconds or less. He yeah. went back for it. Yeah, exactly. I think that he, he really, would have gotten away. He really loves Chris. He, he, he put his life on the line to save Chris, which is out of character for him. And so Chris, I think that he, he's, it's great to have so many different dynamics with each member of the crew. They all feel like very individual people. But when he's on, he's on. And when the job is going on, like when, when you ask, when the chips are down, he will deliver. But it's his personal life that he has no control of. He's kind of all over the place, and he's got no control of anything. Whereas when he's in a shootout, he's in command. When he's researching a job and getting and prepping for a job, he's perfect. And then there's a reason why Neil trusts him, but not the same can be said for his personal life. And also, Neil is heartbroken when he finds out that Chris went off on his own and got his own identity from Nate before Neil got there because Neil probably thought that Chris would come with him. He's like, where's Chris? He's like, free country, brother. Chris came and got his own identity. He's this new guy. He's going to try and go f get Charlene and take off on their own. So it kind of breaks Neil's heart. So actually, yeah. that's a great point. I didn't even think about that, that maybe Neil is kind of something that 
I mean, Chris is something Neil's been attached to that he's not willing to wake walk away from thirty seconds or less. Yeah, Otherwise, con- he would have yeah. walked away from that sh- that shootout. It's contradictory. He would have spared himself, and it, if if he was going through his philosophy and living by it completely, he would have abandoned Chris immediately. Yeah, he would have gone away with that giant bag of money. Yeah, because Chris Chris undoubtedly slowed him down and put him at risk of getting fired upon by the by the uh, officers by law enforcement. Some more characters we have: Michael Chirito or AKA Slick who is played by Tom Sizemore. What a run that guy had. Yeah, he was terrific in the night. I mean, this Saving Private Ryan, he was on fire. And great character. Doesn't have a ton of dialogue, but he's just he's really important for the heist. In he's the a solid side guy. Yeah. Solid, solid supporting actor in these films. He's got one of my favorite lines when uh, they have the bank job coming up, but they're feeling that heat, and Neil's taking them all and talking <laughs> to them. I was like, should we, should we do this job? I want you all to answer for yourselves. And he tells Michael to answer for himself. Don't just say you'll do whatever I'll do. You need to make a decision. I mean, if I was you, I'd be out of here. You got great affairs in order. You got Investments. house. You have stocks. You have yeah. everything. You got your family. And then he goes... You don't, you don't get it. The action is the juice for me. Like, let's go. <laughs> let's effing go. And ultimately, Chirito is the reason why they ended up getting some heat on them in the first place, where the informant tells Vincent that, you know, he he had he went up with this guy, Mike, and he was talking about how there's no action, and he wishes there was action, and there's, there's no crime going on, there's no jobs to do. And he ends up saying that he called, they called him this guy Slick. He's the real deal. Slick obviously was the dead giveaway from the armored heist robbery where a witness heard them say the word slick. It's, so, it's something that Mike, he often calls people slick. It's just a, a idiosyncrasy with him. It's just something he does regularly. So ultimately, Mike Cerrito and his penchant for maybe talking a little too loud is what got them the attention and the heat in the first place. There really wasn't much heat on them after the, after the armored car robbery because nobody knew who did it. None of the detectives had any leads. Slick ended up being the the main lead to it was the catalyst for them looking into the whole crew because once they figured out who Max Rito was, then they ended up they were surveying all the entire crew. They had that night out with their families and partners, and then and then when they walk out, they're getting photographed by by the detective, LAPD. So that was the giveaway. Michael Cerrito talking a little too loud to other men, and Chris and Charlene. This relationship, this marriage is over. It's crumbling. They're both in. They both exper- uh, experience infidelity by the other person, even though they don't show it. Chris has affairs. Even Vincent asks him, like, "Do you have anyone that you're seeing?" He's like, "Not, no one regular." Meaning he does have affairs. Uh, and then also, Charlene is having a fa- an affair with Hank Azaria's character, who actually gets pulled into the investigation as basically kind of a rat, and he's kind of blackmailed by the LAPD and the New Jersey Police Department and Las Vegas Police Department to basically <laughs> pull Charlene into the situation of trying to identify Chris on the street. After they try to first use him a different way, they figure out how to really use him. Then we also have Neil and Justine. Now, Justine is divorced and married to Neil, who she loves very much, but she probably lied to herself because I think Neil's probably such a charming guy yeah, and a really cool a terrific yeah. person just to date because that's why he's got three marriages. Who could stand this son of a bitch? He's been married three times. He's probably a lot of fun at first. He's probably yeah. – like I'm in love with this guy. He's incredible. But Justine obviously is nice. <laughs> Have you ever seen – you've seen that Dunkachino ad, right? Dunkachino. I mean Pacino and Godfather. Come on. <laughs> but clearly Justine is no longer in love well, she's in love with him still, but she can't stand him anymore. And she doesn't want to live this life where 
he she says to him multiple times like you're dead you're a dead person walking like i'm jacked up on on weed and prozac but you're more dead than me and all you do is spend time with the corpses of your the victims of your cases that you're not able to solve or that you do solve you spend more time with just like the death of at los angeles than me baby when we hooked up i told you you'd have to share me with all the bad people and all the bad things of the world. <laughs> but ultimately, I mean, she does have a point where she said she bought into that because he's, she's, he said that he would be honest with her and open with her. And it's the fact that he doesn't tell her anything and he gets home and he's a shell and he's closed off and he's not a husband anymore. He probably was a husband at first and I'm sure the honeymoon phase was really great, but... The longer she's lived with him, I'm, sh I'm certain that he's just become more of a workaholic. And I'm sure that when he gets into a relationship, he puts more attention into the relationship. But then it gets to the point where, oh, it's back to work. I'm I'm more ultimately more interested in my work. And I'm a, he's, he's addicted to it. He's addicted to the chase, just like the criminals are addicted to the next job. He can't help it. That's who he is. And it's ultimately what defines him. And that's his fatal flaw. His, his flaw is his inability to... Uh, engage in intimacy and be able to have a, a healthy back and forth with another person and to be a partnership. He's probably a very, very selfish partner. He, all he does is take, he doesn't really give and he shows up when he wants to and doesn't, he like, he doesn't even let her know when he's going to be four hours late to something or he'll just leave when he gets a page. So it's, that's just the, the kind of man he is. I'm sure he's alluring at first for a relationship and he's, Probably really great to date, and I'm sure the marriage seems appealing at first, but ultimately every woman he's been married to has probably been worn down by his lifestyle. It's interesting that the stepdaughter played by Natalie Portman chose his hotel after he gets kicked out of Justine's house and takes his TV that that guy was watching. You, you don't can... get to watch my television. <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene. I fucking love that scene. He just unplugs it. Sit down! It. Sit down! <laughs> What's his name? I don't I can't remember. <laughs> I have to demean myself with like Hank, <laughs> Greg or something Greg, like yeah. that. <laughs> but you don't get to watch my television. <laughs> and then he, takes, he even takes the TV to the car and kicks it out the door, uh -huh, but yeah. he goes to the hotel and when he finally gets back to the hotel after a long night of work, she's tried to kill herself and slit her wrists, her femoral artery and the artery in her arm. Temporal? I can't remember what that one's called. To try to commit suicide in the bathtub. And it's interesting, she chose his hotel rather than doing it at home with Justine or even at her father's house who she probably hasn't seen in, in months because he's somewhere yeah. in the Sierras and is constantly standing her up. So I really like how even these minor characters that don't have a ton of screen time, you know, Natalie Portman's in like four scenes, they are they are really nuanced and they have a lot of detail and character It's rich in detail and yeah. depth. Like Lauren's character, it's it could be it's like own little movie. You know what I mean? Her scenes and... There are lots of hints to her mental health issues. Like she has a full-blown panic, panic attack because she can't find the barrettes, the right barrettes that she wants because she wants to make sure that she impresses her dad who's already 30 minutes late. That's the first 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, and she has this deep insecurity about her father and a desperation to prove that she's worth his attention because you can only imagine someone like that, a girl in her, in her situation like She's desperate to be loved by her dad, but her dad has no time for her, no no desire to have anything to do with her. 
you can I you can only imagine how destructive that is on her mental health and it's a horrible thing that she's dealing with and that's why you know Vincent finds her on that bench just sitting alone because she just wanted to be alone and then ultimately it led into her her attempted suicide and it's a tragic story and it's it's such a nuanced layer to the many other layers of this film minor character not that much screen time but it has such a, a incredible impact on the film and it doesn't feel like it's unnecessarily there. It really feels like a real situation. and These feel like real people. And it's the lack of a father figure in your life. You know, she has two dads, but none pay her any attention or do anything with her. Vincent is a nice guy. I'm sure he's a nice stepdad when he's around, but he's so busy. He's a workaholic. He's never home. And obviously her biological father never sees her, always stands her up. So she has no father figure in her life. And it's clearly worn her down mentally and I love how they introduced that so early on and it's really terrific and her Natalie Portman's limp body it gets me every time it's like she oh my god she's she, dead she looks so <laughs> dead I, 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 I guess I get like so my stomach drops whenever I see her her, her limbs are just flailing I'm like oh my god she looks like she's dead it's crazy you're not bumping into that microphone <laughs> over there <laughs> a couple other important characters we have Wayne Grow, who is that wild card that someone vouched for on this job but basically if you've seen wrath of man it's kind of like scott eastwood's character except less handsome (laughs) (laughs) he he goes on the killing spree in the opening of the movie when he doesn't have to and then he obviously gets what he deserves from neil later on in the film we also rangro is a really fascinating villain character because he is uh in a lot of ways the antagonist of the film his his inability to control himself and his desire to kill. He, we end up learning he's a serial killer. You know, he's, he kills he kills women every chance he gets. And uh, he kills people. He killed that security guard because I think he just felt like he wanted to. And there's a desire to just, like, he has this desire to kill. And he is very much like, it's like a serial killer thrown into this cops and robbers heist film. But he ends up becoming the main catalyst for all of the conflict of the film, whether it be killing the security guards, which caused them to kill the other guards, which elevated the crime's level status. And then ultimately, he was the rat and informant for Van Sant and got the crew made by the law enforcement. So he's the reason why everything fell apart in every regard. So Wayne Groh is, in a lot of ways, the antagonist of the film. Even though he's not on screen that much, he ruins Vincent's Neil's plans left and right and it seems like he's a character who recently I'm guessing feels like got out of prison and is trying to make money real quick and he's like enjoying freedom and doing all the things that he's wanted to do which is be a horrible villain but he it's interesting what he says to the bartender he says I'm looking for heavy shit like he's looking for serious crimes like violent crimes to do then we have Roger Van Zandt who is basically this kind of like investment banker character and that's who they're stealing those bonds from in the opening of the film. And I like how it's not cash that they're stealing from this armored truck. It's just they're going through these envelopes and tossing everything away until they find the pouch that they're looking for. It's, what is it, $1.6 million in bonds that they sell. And then Van Zant thinks he's can hang with the bad boys and tries to put a hit <laughs> out on Neil. He has one henchman and he thinks he can handle it. <laughs> which doesn't go well because Neil and his crew take out the hit that was put on him when they were trying to do the exchange. There's a dead man on the other line. I love that because <laughs> <laughs> he's talking on the phone. I'm, uh, there's a de- <laughs> His face when he realizes who he's, like the kind of man he's dealing with, like Van Sant's face is like, oh, fuck. doesn't even say anything. He's like, what are you doing? I'm talking to an empty phone. He looks like he just saw a ghost. It's great. But, but he, he's a solid character and I love the revenge that 
Neil gets on him when he goes and throws the chair through his glass window. He's just watching hockey. You should be looking behind your back. Speaking of hockey, it's actually a metaphor for Van Sant watching hockey. So it relates to the hockey masks in the opening film. Oh. So, so before Van Sant is killed by Neil in his home, he's watching a hockey game. Neil and his crew all wore hockey masks during the opening robbery. The hockey helmet's masks is a parallel to Neil's crew. Van Sant thought he could sit back and watch the game like an outside spectator until Neil crashes his protected world, symbolically destroying the glass window like the TV screen, to reveal that he was never safe. When he decided to screw over Neil, he entered the game, thus killing Van Sant like any other criminal who crosses them. So he he's like he thought he could just be an outside spectator of the game like the game he's watching on TV. Then we have Edie who gets into the relationship with Neil in this film, who works at that bookstore and talks to him at that upscale late dinner place in Los Angeles restaurant. <laughs> it's like a late dinner late restaurant. Dinner rest- late dinner. Late dinner. No, it's late dinner place. It's late dinner. It's a <laughs> hip late dinner restaurant. So hip. You're bouncing. What does he say? It's got nine stars. It's got pizzazz. Nine stars on Beverly Hills Magazine. Nine stars out of five. <laughs> <laughs> Who is a graphic designer working at the bookstore. Remember when people used to go to bookstores all the time? It was like, packed. You would spend... You go to the bookstore, you spend an hour there at Easy. least. You at least. You wouldn't buy anything. Sometimes, sometimes you'd spend longer than an hour. You, you would like read chapters of books <laughs> for free. You would Not spend, even at a library. I I would spend so much time at Barnes & Noble sometimes. It's unbelievable. It was like the... Because there's nothing to fucking do. <laughs> <laughs> Before smartphones. We had flip phones. <laughs> Man, I, I just remember... I miss that. I miss, I miss perusing the book sections. It was fun. And then probably the most prominent character remaining is Donald, who... Hold on, do you want to talk about Edie? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah, her. so Edie is, the, is a graphic designer. All right, move on. Working at the, <laughs> working at the bookstore. <laughs> Clearly alone as well, and, and she's new to Los Angeles. She's trying to find somebody, and she obviously recognizes Neil, who comes into the bookstore pretty regularly, that she works at and tries to talk to him. It's like, hey, would you buy? <laughs> hey, lady, why are you so interested in what I bought? <laughs> which, which, who are you? You fucking cop? <laughs> and obviously De Niro's a good-looking guy, so yeah. she's like... <laughs> You've complimented guys' looks like six times so far Happens tonight. every episode. <laughs> every the, episode. Waiting for the Cavill reference. <laughs> but I think, that, I think the Edie-Neil relationship is really fascinating, and it can be... It is quite touching, and it's pretty romantic, too, at times, and... I think just the cinematography with the music and their chemistry is really good and it's solid and it just really makes you feel like they made a real connection. Neil, who's this, like I said earlier, this hardened criminal hasn't let anyone in and then he's finally opening up to someone. And I I find it so touching when they have that dinner with uh, him and and his crew with their families and he sees all these couples laughing and, and being cute together and he's like, I feel lonely. And so what does he do? He goes into the back of the restaurant and he calls Edie and, see, and says, hey, how you doing? And he asks if he could come over and see her. He's feeling lonely for the first time because he's, and he even says, he tells her, he, she says, do you feel lonely? Do you ever feel lonely? He's like, I don't get lonely. She says she feels lonely. I think he was lying because he's afraid to reveal truths about himself and be honest to another person about himself. But he definitely feels lonely. And it's like he feels sad and like he doesn't have someone. And when he sees the people, the couples having a good time, he's like, 
I want that. He he did the uh, 1995 version of the <laughs> what you do in text. <laughs> you, you up? <laughs> hey, hey Edie, what, Edie, you up? W Y D. W Y D. W Y D. Question mark smirky face. <laughs> Eggplant peach. <laughs> Side eye. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> Want to move into the our intermission before we get into the rest of the cast? One character left. Just then, one. This is All one. Right. Then we'll get into the cast. Who is and it? it? It's Donald, Donald, Mr. President, Mr. Allstate, Mr. Oh, President from Donald, 24. Yeah. Uh, he's on parole appointment and employment, and clearly he met Neil while in prison. He's out of jail now. But he's in a broken system because he's working at this job where the boss is a tyrant to him, basically. He's in control of him and takes 25% of his pay illegally, and there's nothing he can do about it. And treats and him like trash. Treats him terribly. And I, the line, One of the lines he says is, I did time for what this motherfucker does every day. It's really tragic. Yeah. Oh, prison. He's in another prison. And he's he's out of jail, but he's in a new prison. Again, this is like Lauren. It's like an, it could be its own movie. You it's a I mean? minor character, yeah. but it's so rich in detail, just yeah. like everyone else. And it's just so fascinating. And I, I miss movies like this where every character has a great backstory with just minimal scenes and minimal dialogue. You don't have to see and explain everything he did. We don't even have know what crime he committed or how long he was in prison. We just we just assume we know he's out of jail because he's working on parole. They don't even say you're on parole employment. He yeah. is just says, I was told to come here and you have work for me. You know 100% what's going on. And also the relationship he has with, it's either his wife or his partner, and it's never implied that they're married, but she's like, can you do this? Can you stick it out? And he's like, hey, I, I got this. You can tell that like what he's about to walk into is going to be hard for him, and it's going to be a struggle, but he's go he, he promises her that he's going to try to work through this and, and do the best he can. It's actually a, a really great character. He tragic does, too. It's so tragic. He does a terrific job with the minimal amount of screen time he has. Dennis also, Hay Haysbert. Yeah, he's oh man, I loved him in Twenty Four. He's so good in Twenty Four. President. Oh my god! If you guys haven't seen Twenty Four, the first two seasons are fucking rock solid. Like, <laughs> holy shit! Holy shit! Excellent so, network TV. It's so when, good. When network TV was good. Yeah, they had some good hits. That was one of them. But it's just such a tragic character, and also it's just a a terrific example of how terrible that system is. It was probably worse than it is now, but it definitely still is terrible. It's hard for ex-cons to find work. It's hard for ex-cons to be trusted in any kind of industry. And they, it's a struggle every day, even if they turn over a new leaf and even if they've become changed people and they want to do better, it's hard for them to even try to make a good life for themselves. And it's oftentimes why criminals get back into crime because there's no other way for them to make a living and to survive. And they're often put in these situations where it's either – it's out of desperation they turn back to crime. And I think in a lot of ways he turns from desperation where he's being treated like an animal. He has no power in his life, no agency, no independence. You know what? He's given an opportunity. It's just like a knee-jerk reaction like, fuck it, let's go. Fuck it. I'm coming with you, Neil. Fuck it! So I, I totally understand his decision to be the getaway driver. Also, just brilliant planning by Neil. Often, like I said earlier, just being the perfect planner and so controlled of everything he planned to have their meeting in that diner on the off chance that Trejo couldn't make it. It's just genius by Neil to just have even a backup to plan. Think that, to think of that. He's got backup plans. Now let's head on into our intermission. We didn't even get into the shootout Woo, yet. It's been it's like an hour. We're like an hour ten into this thing. Holy crap! There's still so much to talk about because this is 
An all-timer, everybody. This is an all-timer. 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 Now, before we continue, <laughs> the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have five different levels of tiers of support. $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100 tiers. All tiers have awesome perks. Everyone gets a weekly bonus episode, but check out the tiers to see all the goodies you get in each category. You can also take an online masterclass we have for podcasts. If you want to start a podcast, and many of you have been starting podcasts and taking our course, which includes dozens and dozens of videos and tutorials of how we started our show, go to the link podcastmasterclass.teachable.com. It's available for purchase, and you have access to it forever, and you can hit us up anytime for questions. This episode is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Use our promo code Raiders10, you know it, Raiders10, at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order today. They have a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show in their poster library, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs our place is decked out with these amazing posters. Our home is decked out with these posters. If you're a movie fan or there's a movie fan in your life, there's no better gift to get yourself or that movie person than a awesome movie poster. And the best place, of course, to do that is at MoviePosters.com. And be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. Now, let's begin our intermission, Anthony. You ready? I'm ready. Here's better, my, better be good. Here's my movie quote. She's lost that loving feeling. You've lost that No, she hasn't. Feeling. She has. She's lost that loving feeling. Oh, man. Um, I don't know. Really? Yeah. Oh, Top Gun. Oh, my God. <laughs> Again? I even sang the song. I know. I thought, I thought that meant you got it. <laughs> <laughs> boom. 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 Bum, bum, we just missed us. They didn't bum, do that in Maverick, an uncomfortable bum, bum. singing in front of a girl scene. That's why that movie is brilliant. It had everything the original had, expanded on it, and then took out the stuff that did not age well and <laughs> <laughs> did not play well. Here's my quote. You just said you love me. Now, if I say I love you and just throw caution to the wind and let the chips fall where they may, and you're lying to me, I'm going to fucking die. My God, what is this? Say it one more time. You just said you love me. Now, if I say I love you and just throw caution to the wind and let the chips fall where they may, and you're lying to me, I'm going to fucking die. I don't know. It's Clarence in True Romance. I knew it, man. I knew you knew it, man. Sounds so familiar. All right, guess this movie release year. Tombstone. 1992. 93. Oh! <sighs> Guess this movie release here. Nine... <laughs> Dracula. <laughs> I almost said the year. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. Dracula? OG Dracula? De Palma Dracula. Okay, De Palma Dracula. It's a lot, there's a lot of Dracula movies. There are. 19... 
fucking idiot. Movie pop quiz time. I'm kidding. You're not an idiot. We, I, I accidentally said this in the episode. But I'll say it anyways. What is it? What comic book movie came out in the same year as Heat? Oh, I didn't. I wasn't listening. Oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> what comic book movie Shit. came out in the same year as Heat? Comic book movie in 1995. Um, oh, that's a good question. It's a good question. 1995. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing it's not. I'm I'm guessing it's not a superhero movie, but still a comic book. <laughs> 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 I don't know. Batman Forever. Oh my god. <laughs> I said it earlier. Oh my god. Oh my god. You idiot. It's oh my probably god. not a big superhero. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> Obviously. I should have put connected the dots that you were doing all Val Kilmer connection <laughs> for your trivia. Okay. Gary Oldman has voiced a video game character. In multiple iterations of two popular video games, can you name the two video games? So he's voiced a character in many iterations of the games. Two very popular games. I'm going to go Call of Duty. Correct. And Metal Gear Solid. No. Call of Duty and... The next one is more kids-based video games. Angry Birds. (laughs) 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 They don't talk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Carrie Elvin did all the bird sounds in Angry Birds. (laughs) (laughs) True Chameleon. I didn't even know it was him. I didn't know it was him. He glued feathers to his body in the soundstage and everything. In the recording booth? Yeah, the booth he had a beak on. Painted himself red. (laughs) <laughs> this fucking guy. Um, I don't know. Spyro. Oh, cool. Yes, it's the like Spyro video game. games. He uh, voice acted in like four of them. <laughs> Angry Birds. <laughs> Crack myself up sometimes. <laughs> Congrats, man. All right, you make yourself laugh. Wow. Whoa. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's salty. Why I'm not just, salty. I'm peppery. Just tell us a hater besides you. <laughs> <laughs> we got some haters. We got. Let me uh, pull them up real quick. I got them right here. Right her. Right her. I like the way I got them right her. Right her. It's from the hips when you do just. You call yourselves Tom Cruise fans, but I'm yet to see a Vanilla Sky review. Unsubscribe <laughs> from Ruar McGrath. It's a good point. That's a great movie though. Next up, we have one second. Mason Kunstler. No, we are your hosts, James and Anthony. Unsubscribe. (laughs) (laughs) We're changing it up. It's gone forever. (laughs) Adapt or die. (laughs) And then that's it for unsubscribes. We have a great five-star review. And all I want to say is, first of all, this is the coolest name I've ever heard. Well, not ever, but it's a really cool name. Prescott Wilbanks. That's a cool That's name. That's a great name. Prescott Wilbanks. Sounds like a Sounds like a Wild West. Yeah, or like a anti-hero. murder mystery character. Prescott wrote five stars, brotherly banter and cinematic. I can't, the tagline got cut off. Sorry, pal. 
Ladies and gentlemen, put down your popcorn and turn off your streaming service because the greatest movie podcast in the world is here. The d- dynamic duo who run the show are like Batman and Robin, but instead of fighting crime, they're fighting for the title of who has better movie taste. Spoiler alert, it's both of them. And Anthony's Robin. <laughs> I said that, not him. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> These brothers have a passion for film that's so contagious you'll be tempted to start a film club with your pets after listening. Their selection of movies is like a buffet. There's something for everyone, but don't don't worry, they make they won't make you sit through a kale salad of a movie. They stick to the good stuff. <laughs> Their banter is like a tennis match, but instead of volleys, they're throwing jokes and movie references. They're also entertaining. They're so entertaining, you'll forget you're listening to a podcast and think you're at a comedy club. Aww. I've been a loyal listener for years, and I can confidently say that this podcast is like a fine wine. It only gets better with age, so put on your headphones, press play, and join the brothers on their cinematic journey, five stars, and then some. Wow, Prescott, Thanks, that might Prescott. be my favorite review of all time. That's a fantastic review. So many metaphors here. I loved it. <laughs> so great. Great pros. Their banter great is pros. like a tennis match. <laughs> great pros. <laughs> their selection of movies is like a buffet. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Appreciate it, Prescott Wilbanks. Badass name. All right, my uh, streaming recommendation is War of the Worlds just got put on HBO Max. Turn off the lights. Pop a bottle of wine and enjoy that one. <laughs> you set it up to be like a romantic. Oh yeah! Night. You open the chocolates. You're in for a good time. Definitely won't get be. The, you definitely get, won't be anxious the whole time. Get the charcuterie. <laughs> Did someone say fondue? <laughs> My recommendation is Beast on Amazon Prime. With Idris Elba fighting a lion, honestly, <laughs> it was better than I thought it would be. That should just be the synopsis. It's legit. <laughs> well, he does. It's uh, it was. I thought it was gonna be horrible. I thought it was gonna be terrible. And I was like, "Well, wow, it's actually pretty good." It was. It was pleasantly surprising. I liked it. It's Cujo with a lion. It's not perfect. It's cheesy dialogue and yeah. cliche, cliche characters, ch- cliche uh, kids. Yeah. Like- <laughs> but once it gets rolling, it's actually a lot of fun. And I just, I just enjoy, I just turned my brain off and I, I really thoroughly enjoyed the film. Charlotte Copley is awesome as well. Yeah, he's great. And it was just like really good CGI. I was surprised, but like really, really cool, brutal kills. Like I, I was, I was walked in with no expectations and I was, I was happy. It's a savage movie. Yeah. All right. Let's get back into our episode on heat. And how about we start with, a con to this movie. Well, Han, there's one more thing with the characters. I have some fun facts about Wayne Grow. Wayne Grow. Wayne Grow. Wayne Grow. So Kevin Gage, the actor who played Wayne Grow, he was actually arrested and imprisoned for two years in 2003. And he was universally addressed by the fellow inmates and prison guards as Wayne Grow, his character from the film. Does it say what he did? No, I didn't look that deep into it. Wayne Grow is also based on a real Chicago criminal named Wayne Grow, who ratted out some influential... Sh- influential Chicago criminals. According to Michael Mann, Wangro went missing. His body was found in northern Mexico where it had been nailed to the wall of a shed. Pretty Damn. crazy. Pretty crazy. I love Michael Mann because he brings so much authenticity to his <laughs> crime movies with crime and basing a lot of the characters and situations on real events is really terrific and that's why it's such a great story. Sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction, you know? It's just like, you can't write that stuff sometimes. You can't, man. How right, about, what's the con? So we got to go to the con of this movie. There's one con. It's, otherwise, yeah, I think I know, I know what you're going to say. It is the CGI green screen background. Or not CGI, the green screen background, specifically when... Just this, just the one. Just the one yeah. when Neil and Edie, after they meet at the high-end late dinner... 
Beverly. <laughs> <laughs> He's joking. The way you keep describing this restaurant, the way oh they met, the way they made it, the using six adjectives every time we describe it. It is a high-end, hip, late supper restaurant in Beverly Hills. How else would you describe that? It got nine stars in the Beverly Hills magazine. Anthony. It's in Santa Monica, first of all. <laughs> you can't just say restaurant. <laughs> No. <laughs> That's demeaning. This is a, a late supper. Hip late summer. High end hip late supper. <laughs> That's what it is. You, you wouldn't call a cat a dog. Anyways. Oh my god. <laughs> I forgot what I was gonna say. <laughs> okay, so before, okay, after, after dinner, after dinner at the the late night hip, late restaurant, late dinner, <laughs> the high end hip, late supper restaurant, hot spot, hot spot, where young adults and professionals go. <laughs> they go to Edie's place that has the terrific view, and it's run down. It doesn't look run down at all, by the way, Edie. Uh, and they're looking out at the skyline of, of Los Angeles, the beautiful twinkling skylights. If, if you've been to L.A., there's so many great lookout points to get this view. It's also, if you're flying over Los Angeles, it's a terrific view. Yeah, you can see across the whole valley. It's just like stars. <laughs> it's like stars. <laughs> it, looks like, it looks like the solar system. It's incredible. Now, this then is... Then you see it in the daytime. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, shit, it's all concrete. And smog. <laughs> it's smog everywhere. <laughs> there's smog. Um, but these shots are pretty abhorrent and it's the the, the, the angling the and the, the the framing is just so odd it doesn't fit it almost seems like they're like really far away with the telephoto lens but it just doesn't work doesn't line with, up. with a dual focal yeah, point like i said earlier they filmed it in a green screen and then they filmed la's landscape over under overexposed it to really show the sky and you could see it you could see what they were trying to do but it was clearly a mistake, and it didn't work out. And it got to the point where I'm sure they were like, "Fuck, this is our footage. This is all we have." It's jarring. Yeah. So it 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 hasn't aged well. I'm sure. I I remember seeing it as a kid and never noticing it, but as an adult and seeing it more times, it's, it's just like super noticeable now. I'm guessing it was fine in the '90s. I think it wasn't as jarring for people back then, but it has not aged well. And for someone who's such a brilliant visual stylist, it's like the one. Like, clearly just mistake he's made as a visual filmmaker. Yeah, so that one scene just takes me out of it because the whole time, instead of listening to the dialogue, which it's realistic, it kind of feels like a first date, just the simple questions of backgrounds and where you're from and what are your hopes and dreams. Just ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> Here's how you talk to women. Just ask questions. Look at me, I'm ugly as hell, but I get laid. <laughs> 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 A whole section on do it yourself. Do you like to do it yourself? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> How's the mood striking now? We should do that episode. Forty year virgin. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> what? Look, it's not based on your life, Anthony. <laughs> Loosely adapted from your from your life. <laughs> Anyways, this scene takes me out of it. It's just so jarring. It is what it is. You know, shooting shots with visual effects in the nineteen nineties. 
I mean, you put in Jurassic Park, the antelope don't, I mean, the antelope grazing running, that doesn't look terrific. Whatever those dinosaurs are. <laughs> antelope <laughs> <Ant> dinosaurs. <laughs> no, like they're real animals. The antelope type dinosaurs. They're like antelopes, but they're dinosaurs. <laughs> you said antelope no, grazing. I said antelope-like dinosaurs. Antelope-like. They're like in herds and they're running and they're. Yeah, yeah, I got you. <laughs> it doesn't look great. The raptors don't look great either. They're practical ones. They look better. Well, so he, Spielberg understood if you shoot it wider, the better it looks with that CGI. So true. Yeah, I agree. It, it when we watched it last night, that scene took me out of it. It always has in the past as well. So it hasn't aged well, and it was a, it was a mistake, and I wish that he didn't do it because it does. It's jarring, but you know he tried something. And that's why, like I said, that's why he's gone to digital filmmaking. He has more range to be able to photograph both a person and the night sky in the same shot and expose for both. And it's the film can't do that. Film has never been capable of that. That's just the way it is. And when we brought up earlier, the two most memorable scenes from Heat are clearly the shootout and the diner scene. There's another scene that I think is really terrific because it, it's so tense that no one really talks about. And I think it has one of my favorite shots, if not my favorite shot from the entire film, besides the shootout in the diner, is the infrared shot. So this is oh, when yeah. Neil and Chris are on their own robbery. Um, it doesn't seem like Michael's there they're or anybody all there. else. Are they? Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, they're all there. So, so, uh, did you Neil even watch the fucking movie? <laughs> <laughs> Neil and <laughs> so Neil and, and Chris they hijack the train. <laughs> Anyways, let me get to the scene. So Neil and Chris are going inside this IGM securities and they're being surveilled. They don't know by Vincent and his team, the LAPD, which has a couple crews inside trucks and on lookouts on roofs and everything, and they're breaking into some sort of vault and a, min a minerals vault. Okay, valuable yeah. minerals. Because they sell me they sell metals, metals basically. Yeah. He's a he's a metal salesman, and they lady. Don't why are you so interested in what I do? <laughs> <laughs> they don't suspect there's any heat on them at all. They haven't been approached. There's been no sign of police anywhere until during the surveillance. One of my great my favorite shots in this movie probably is first Neil comes outside while Chris is breaking into the vault, and he slowly backs into the shadows of a corner. This is this one of the two or three times in this movie where he like backs into a corner. It's really interesting what he does as a character. So he sees his anything that approaches him from all sides. It's actually a really smart tactic until a lot of people come on you. But so you can see everything. And inside one of those crates inside the truck, one of the cops, like the guy who's so nervous and asking questions, makes a sound, bumps into the wall. And immediately Neil hears it. Maybe the average robber Passes it off as nothing, and obviously that leads to them getting caught and arrested. But Neil, he's so professional, so precise, he has a code that he sticks to. The second he feels any, even a tiny bit of heat all over his shoulder, anything, he's calling it off. He calls the mission off. They get away scot-free. They let them go. They could arrest them for B&E, but Vincent's like, no way. They're just going to get off from the streets in six months. There's no point in doing that. We need to catch them when they actually steal something. That's why they don't take them down, even though they have committed a crime. I love, but that infrared shot is yeah. my, maybe my favorite shot. In the I movie. love that shot because he's in the darkness, and then we in Michael Mann. He doesn't like do an insert of the screen, like taking up the entire frame, like so many other filmmakers would do. It's still just like he's photographing just the televisions, and it's just phenomenal. Where you just he slowly pushes in, and then you just see Neil's face just like staring right at us. There he is, and it's it's just a wonderful shot. I love that, and this is why. 
Neil doesn't get busted. This is why he's probably been a thief for many years now since he got out of his many stints in prison. I can't, who knows the last time he was caught. It was probably many years ago. It's because he's so careful. Like you said, once he feels the moment, once he feels like the slightest ting of insecurity about a job, he's like, we're out. See you later. That's what keeps them going. And ultimately, it wasn't like the big job. That's why I think he also felt comfortable, wasn't really worth the risk. And he knew, he didn't even have to double check. He knew that there was heat on them. And then I love the next sequence, how they are, they go to that huge empty space in the harbor and that like industrial park. And they pretend that like they're going over a plan of like robbing one of these spaces nearby. And then, then they leave and the, detect- the detective crew goes out and they're like, what the hell are they looking at? And then it's just Neil and the others are just photographing them and watching them. And I love how he turns the tables on them and shows how good he is. Like, is this guy something or is he something? I, I love that sequence. It's a terrific reveal. And it's like, even though, even though they're vulnerable to the LAPD at this moment and they're exposed he still, in a way, has the upper hand in some regards because they haven't done anything that can be convicted of they're, they're, since they didn't convict them for Beanie, and they don't know what their plan is for the next robbery. So they they feel like they're safe enough to keep going forward. They don't have to jump ship. They don't have to run away. And plus, they can barely keep a tail on Neil long enough to know where he goes to and what, what his M.O. is like. Plus, they drop all surveillance after the diner scene. It's actually so brilliant, and they lose all eyes on every person in the crew, and then they have no idea what the next job Except is going to be. Except for Treo. Well, that comes later on. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, so they drop all – but they did drop all surveillance on the bank job, but he drops out of the bank job anyways. Yeah. So even while the bank robbery is taking place – sorry, <clears throat> we were laughing so much, like – you're right. My voice is like a little out. But they even during the bank robbery, they don't even know what they're doing yet. It's not until they get the the tip from their CI, which is Wayne Grow and Van Sant's guy, that they're robbing that specific bank. Now the diner scene, so terrific. These two heavyweights, Pacino, De Niro. It's the second time they've been in a movie together, but it's the first time they've shared scenes together. Obviously, they're both in The Godfather Part Two. However, they play grandfather and grandson in very different timelines and time periods of the saga of the godfather they're never on screen together so it's the first time they're actually playing each other in the same you mean father, I mean, father and son? son sorry i father was like son. what <laughs> did he i was like did he really say very father grandson no Man. no it is huh no i'm sorry sorry father son Sorry, my he bad. He just plays the young Vito. i know i know i know i'm sorry Do father you? son so what happens in the film is uh in the godfather al pacino plays michael corleone and then Marlon Brando played Vito Corleone. But in the second one, get this. I'm Robert De Niro played the Maximus younger Vito Corleone in the flashbacks. Anyways, <laughs> sorry. I got confused for a moment. They didn't share scenes together. End of the story. End of the story. Good day. Goodbye. <laughs> good day to you, sir. I said good day. <laughs> this is the first time that they share scenes together. And these two heavyweights in to see them together on this on a big screen what it must have been really incredible experience in 1995 especially because it takes about two hours to get to this point to get to this conversation it's kind of like when you see american gangster and russell crowe and denzel they're like almost never together in that entire movie sharing scenes together so and then it's, it's really impactful when in heat when they get together in the diner 
Yeah, and that's how actually the marketing for the film really hit that home. It was they called it like the showdown between Pacino and De Niro, and all the marketing and posters really uh, hit hit that home that it was the, these two legends sharing the screen, finally sharing the screen together in scenes together. And the scene is really special. And what's cool is it's not like scenery chewing monologues, but what I, I love the minimalist nature of the dialogue, how simple it is. And how casual and conversational it is in a lot of ways. And the what's really cool is they didn't even rehearse it. So Pacino revealed in an interview that when they were on set that day, the first day of filming that sequence, and they were going to do rehearsal. And then Pacino and De Niro were talking about him. Pacino's like, should we do a rehearsal? And De Niro said, no, no, no rehearsal. So because he because he said De Niro said he wanted to make it feel like. Uh, it was it was very authentic, very uh, very realistic, and these two never met. Yeah, never met before. An uncomfortability between the two of them. Although, even though De Niro and Pacino were, were have always been very good friends, uh, and it really added to the. It kind of felt like very freeing. I'm sure as an actor, and you could get that sense. And what's really fascinating about this is Neil and Vincent. They are so similar. Like we said many ways before they're just opposite sides of the same coin in so many ways and they even make multiple connections to each other and they even seem like two guys who could like get along if like they weren't cop and criminal they maybe had other careers they could be friends and you could see them even like kind of like holding back from smiling with one another and it's it's interesting how they both separate themselves from normal people neither of them live normal lives even though you would think that the cop would be the normal one because he's not killing people, he's not violently hurting people, he's not taking people's money or stealing what have you. You would think that the comp would be like the the normal guy, but they're he, Vincent is just as abnormal as as Neil is, and they illustrate that point where he's like, "What's what's normal? Ball games and barbecues? Yeah, <laughs> is that what you do?" He's like, "Nah." <laughs> <laughs> so they're both just very atypical human beings in a society. And they make a connection through that. How like you know what? We're not just a everybody Joe Schmo kind of guy. We're we're very different from everybody else sitting around us. We're like on a different level. We get excellent exposition. This is where we learn about Neil's prison stints. We also get some foreshadowing because they're talking about what would happen if basically you saw me on a job. Would you walk out on this woman if you spotted me? foreshadowed to him leaving Edie later on in the film, which is one of the reasons why, if people are wondering, why did Neil run towards that car that had Edie, a woman he doesn't know, sitting in it by herself because there's mayhem all around the entire hospital, the hotel, fire trucks, ambulance, people running everywhere. But there's this one woman sitting in a car by herself looking inside. Why isn't she moving or anything? She should be like everyone else is erratic. Oh, you mean Vince? Vincent. I mean Vince. I'm sorry. Yeah. Why is Vin- Why is Vincent running to Edie? Yeah, because he's got got a hunch. Yeah. He's a good detective. He's got that angst he's that insightful. keeps him sharp. Yeah. So he he kind of he's perceptive. Yeah, and that's why also he continues to the airport because he can assume that Vincent. I mean Neil has a getaway planned. He was near the airport. He's probably gonna fly away on a plane. So that's why he keeps running to the airport and tracks him down there. Those are maybe two questions that maybe get people get confused by. I don't think the that film. I don't think he had an out at that airport because he went to that hotel to kill Wayne Grow, and it was definitely not according to his plan. So I think that he just went into the airport because it was the only safe option because there were so many uh, law enforcement officers. All, well, all I think that maybe area. he was gonna try and still catch the plane. 
That wasn't where his plane was. Are you sure? Isn't yeah, because he took the exit and she and he's and it was the clearly the dip, the wrong exit. They weren't going the right way. No, but then he ran into the airport. Well, the airport. So this airport is an unrelated airport next to that hotel. So yeah. when he turned off the freeway, he's he literally turned around. He turned the car around. You know what I mean? Yeah. To go to that motel. That I was hotel. assuming it's the same airport they just no, ran no, no. To. I, he was just looking for a way to get out. He was just looking. He was run, the airport. He would have just kept driving down the freeway for who, who knows who knows how long, probably down the LAX or something. So that airport is not the same airport that he was planning to go to escape to Fiji. Gotcha. All right. Anyways, I love some more of the dialogue where they're kind of asking each other like what drives them basically. And Neil says, "I do what I do best. I take down sc- scores." No, I mean Vincent I take, says that. Yeah, yeah. I take down scores, and you do what you do best. You try to find people like me. Wait, wait, are you, you're getting confused again. Vince, Neil says I take down scores, not Vincent. Yeah, did I mix it up? Yeah. Yeah, I said, no, I fixed it. You said Vincent says I take down scores. Yeah, no, I fixed it. No, you said, that's what you said for your career. No, I, I thought you said Spider. No. <laughs> Spider, I thought you said Spider. <laughs> Just give me the fucking drink. But I, I thought you said Spider. Hey, no, Tom, no, 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 no. hey Tommy, why don't you go fuck yourself? <laughs> good shot. Hey, Spider! Okay, Sam, good shot. This is for you! <laughs> Shoots him in the foot, he tells him to go fuck himself! <laughs> Anyways, great dialogue. It's what I'm trying to get to. But they're so alike. Yeah, yeah. And there's that mutual respect. Like you said, it was great that they're holding back smiles from each other because they really respect each other. Like I said earlier, it seems like if you flip their positions in life, they might have led the same exact paths that either one are on. You know what I love about that scene that's not shown? I want to see them like walking in together or like and then like paying for the tab like who's I'll get it. No, 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 I'll get it. Oh, no. I got it. I got it. And then like leaving <laughs> together, do they do they do like a handshake? Do they like do they like hug each other like a bro hug? <laughs> they say like good luck, man. Like what happens after that? Cuz man does a hard cut out in and out of the scene. You don't see how they arrive into the table. Maybe Vincent's like, so what are you up to this week? <laughs> oh, I almost, I almost I got see you. you. I see you. Well, I actually, see I'm you. planning to. Oh, oh I see you. you. I see you. I see you. Almost, I see you. Almost, man. I see you, fucker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching you. <laughs> it's just something I like to think, imagine. Like, what's the, uh, what is it like when they're leaving the table? Like, when they, it's, it's just a little, like, a funny thing that I would, it, it works better the way they filmed it, which is cutting to them sitting at the table. And then cutting out from the shot of Vincent and just cutting out. But it's just fun to think, like, did they, like, leave together or did they, like, split the tab? Just fun stuff like that. I just can't help thinking about it. And I remember they talk about their dreams. Yeah, the dreams. Neil, I mean, Vincent, I mean, sorry. (laughs) Neil talks about his dream where he's drowning. He's kind of reserved about it. But then, but Vincent talks about his dream where he sees the dead bodies of the victims of all of his cases. And they've blacked blacked out eyes and they're all just watching him they don't say anything to each other they just stare at each other and then Niels is is drowning it's really interesting that they were able to like talk discuss their dreams which are clearly somewhat metaphors for their lives and the way they live because that's not there are multiple references to Vincent being a dead person walking specifically like I brought up with Justine calling him a dead person you walk you walk amongst the dead the dead remains of the cases that you've had. And it's just reflected back into his dreams. It's interesting how much they open up to one another. And, and Vincent tells him like all about his like disaster of a, of a life. He says, 
My life's a disaster zone. <laughs> I'm on my third marriage. <laughs> I'm on the downside of a marriage. My third. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get my Donchino. <laughs> uh, but I love how they open up to one another because Vincent probably doesn't wouldn't tell that to anyone else. I bet. But they they respect each other, and there is a connection between the two of them of like we're the same kind of guy. We're just on opposite ends of the spectrum of what we do and in our morality. And I love the conclusion of their conversation where basically Vincent goes, if I'm here and I got to put you away, brother, I won't like it. <laughs> but I'll tell you, if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife you're going to turn into a widow, brother, you are going down. And then Neil says, there's a flip side to that coin. What if you do get me boxed in and I got to put you down? Because no matter what, you will not get in my way. We've been face to face, but I won't hesitate, not for a second. Have you seen Tom Hiddleston do that? On uh, that British show. Oh, yeah. yeah, on Graham Norton's show yeah, in yeah. front of De Niro. It was really, it was he, really... I'm sure he was super nervous to yeah. do it. Because I, I believe it's his favorite movie. Yeah, I think so too. I think I've read that. But it must have been a, like a dream come true to like do that, that scene in front of one of your idols of your favorite scene probably ever and something that probably inspired him to be an actor. Isn't that something like so special? I'm yeah. sure that he'll, he'll never forget. They'll hold a place in his heart. That's so dear to him. I'm sure. Cause that's probably, it's probably a scene in a movie that inspired him to be an actor and to be able to perform the monologues in front of one of them. That must have been unbelievable for him. De Niro's probably, yeah, kind of butchered it, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> just no, kidding. no, he's kidding. He's, I'm kidding. He's, 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 he's approved. I'm he sure approved. he's very nervous. Yeah. Hiddleston. I'm, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I love Hiddleston. I love De Niro. Oh, yeah, Hiddleston, because he, he did both actors' accents perfectly, and it, Bob's just a shy guy. He's just super. He's he's just like not someone that you want. Like on like so Fallon. Well, his first episode, he asked De Niro to be on it. <laughs> and De Niro because I saw Dustin Hoffman and De Niro went on Fallon years later together promoting something like because they're pals and Dustin the Fockers Ho movie yeah the, yeah the Fockers movie and then Dustin Hoffman is very sociable very personable uh, very charming guy very funny and happy to happy to be like the the center of attention and De Niro he's a very shy closed off reserved guy and and Dustin Hoffman made fun of Fallon. He's like, you actually, you asked him to be your first guest. <laughs> <laughs> he gives nothing but one word responses. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw another one where uh, Alec Baldwin, before like, everything happened, he used to have a talk show, and he would have other actors on. And then um, <laughs> he said, he said De Niro. He asked De Niro to be on his show. And De Niro's like, how long is it going to be? He's like, an hour and a half. He goes, Alec, what are we going to talk about for an hour and a half? <laughs> <laughs> I, got a, I, got a, I got a story for that, too. And this was after, this is when Tarantino made Jackie Brown, De Niro's in it, and they're doing press for it, and they're both, it's a hilarious interview on YouTube, where it's De Niro and Tarantino on a couch being interviewed for, like, some network. And um, Tarantino's obviously like answering all the questions. He's so into it. He's yeah. giving like a thousand word responses to simple questions because that's just the way Tarantino is. And then um, they ask a question for De Niro, and then De Niro just turns to Tarantino and like points to his watch. He's like, I gotta be somewhere. I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I, I gotta go. I gotta go. He's like, he definitely doesn't want to be there. <laughs> that's amazing. Like, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta go. I'm sorry. I gotta go. Tarantino called him the best actor ever. 
Would, of his generation. He's top five all time for me, probably. Did I ever, top tell, 10, did I ever told the shoe story? The Jackie Brown shoe story? I think so, but why don't you tell again in case everyone yeah, doesn't Yeah, because I think it was a while ago. I think it might have been on our Tarantino episode like two years ago. But um, Tarantino was trying to cast Bob De Niro in Jackie Brown. And De Niro liked his two films, but he just it's hard to cast De Niro in anything at that point in his time. Like, and so hot in the nineties. Yeah, like he and also like he wasn't making like as many choices to be in a ton of movies back then, like he is now, like the last twenty years. And so he was being more selective with his options, I would say. And then Tarantino was like, I don't know how to convince him to be in this movie. And he and he was with uh, another filmmaker, I think another director, and the director said, De Niro is obsessed with character detail and he cares a lot about a person's shoes and a character's shoes. And so he gave that tidbit to, to Tarantino. He's because it's something that like would help show that Tarantino was like really invested as a writer in the character. And so Tarantino met with De Niro. They had like lunch or coffee talking about the role in Jackie Brown and De Niro seemed like kind of interested, but not fully. And then De Niro at the end of the discussions, he goes, what kind of shoes does the guy wear? And then Tarantino, because his friend gave him that tip, had wrote an entire backstory about the kinds of shoes that De Niro's character would be wearing in the films, why he's wearing them, what situations he got these shoes in. And then he had like this whole thing prepped, said it all, the whole spiel to De Niro. And then De Niro's like, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> so it was all about the shoes. And this episode is now all about to be the bank heist and shootout. And this is a 10 and a half minute sequence from beginning to end. And it feels like a half hour of Yeah, epicness. it's only 10 minutes? I can't believe it's wow. how short it is. I looked up on YouTube 10 and a half it's minutes. It's hard to believe. From beginning of when they walk inside the bank and everything. Uh -huh. And this is the pinnacle of bank heists, of robberies, of shootouts in film. And you can see the blueprint that this has become for so many movies. Like, obviously, The Dark Knight we're talking about. But when you think of movies, like, even, like, the Place Beyond the Pines. Oh, yeah. You can't watch that movie now and not think of Heat and the influence it's had on that. But every bank robbery... I'm sure they all wish that they could pull it off like Michael Mann did with Heat. It's so excellent. I love how they just go in there with the suits and sunglasses, then switch to masks. But also the opening robbery with the hockey masks is so memorable. There's no way that Ben Affleck didn't get a ton of influence from that opening sequence with the, the wardrobe for sure. Yeah. The the bank robbery is really special. And to this day, I still say it's one of those robbery shootouts. one of the greatest action sequences ever put on film. If It could be the best it's just really remarkable. And being someone who lives in L.A., downtown L.A. has a really unique look. And it's I, I love watching this movie because they shot all, all those sequences in downtown. And it's a really cool area. However, it's difficult to film there. They could only film on weekends, which I'm sure extended the shooting schedule quite a bit to only be able to do those scenes on weekends. It'd probably be impossible to do today. Yeah, you can't. So there's, so there's so many people that work here in downtown. More cars and more people. Yeah, probably double impossible. the population. Yeah. Although, I mean, weekend mornings, it's pretty empty. Yeah, but I mean, are... huge city blocks. Yeah. But, um, and it's cool when the detectives name out streets and stuff. I'm like, oh, I know that street. I've been around there. <laughs> yeah, Anthony can actually <laughs> drive downtown without Google Maps. It's pretty impressive. I know, it's no big deal or anything. But I, everything from that music, that dun, 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 dun. It's kind of, it's like a ticking dun. clock sort of yeah. like from Interstellar yeah. or something like that. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. Clearly Nolan got inspiration and, and from the, that. And the robber scene in Dark Knight with the with the pencil like percussion. Yeah. It, if you can, I can feel it. It's just, it's part adds to the story so much yeah. in the scene. But what's, it's just really remarkable how fast, I feel like Michael Mann timed the sequences of action to suit the real time of the robbery for both robberies. 
because the armored car robbery, it, it felt, I think it was under three minutes. I think it kept the film runtime to be exact for how long the robberies would take. And that's what really makes it feel so special, which is probably why it's shocking to see how fast it is when you look at it on paper, how, how short the scene is. Because it's so well done, it's so well choreographed. You feel like the scene is like monumentally big, and you watch so many robbery mo- have, robberies happen in movies now, and they can be quite long scenes. But this is just like they're in and out, but it feels like fucking twenty minutes because there's so much, so many details. You're so invested in it. Every time I watch it, I'm just in it. I'm just like holy fuck. Like when it when the 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 music came on. And they cut to the bank. We both were like, let's fucking go. Yeah, as soon as they take go. out the security guards, pull the mask yeah. down, De Niro hops on top of the counters. It's intense. Yeah. And the way he speaks to the to the patrons and, and employees there, it seems just so realistic. And I love how he punches the bank manager in the face when he says, what key? Sit there. Let it bleed. Let it bleed. I love that, to tell him to let it bleed. It's just great detail. But even like little details, like if you feel sick, Go ahead and lean against the wall. Like these little details that just like add nuance to such a situation that we've seen a thousand times. But this, to say something like, if you feel sick or you're going to throw up, go ahead and lean against the wall. Like that's such a great thing to put in there. So many practical filmmaking elements as well. And, and rather than dubbing in the gunshots during the bank robbery shootout, Michael Mann had microphones carefully placed all around the set exteriors and interiors so that the audio could be captured live this adds to the impact of the scene because it actually sounded like no other gunfight shown on screen is no other gunfight sounds like this well I'll, I'll tell you what happened with that so they they recorded plenty of audio and it, it's it sounds remarkable everything that you see in the film is what they film recorded on the day of and what really sets it apart is the echoes that's what makes it sound different, like the echoes of the gunfire bouncing around all the buildings. You never heard anything like that in a, in a movie before. That's what really makes the sound special. When you hear the firing, it's just like reverberating in all these walls of these tall buildings, and the, the sound waves can't escape. They're just bouncing all over the place. That's what gives it that crazy, eerie quality that you've, that's never been duplicated, that, that echoing. But what happened was they shot the sequence, edited it, and then they sent it to the sound department, um, and then the sound department completely dubbed over a uh, foley art and made their own entire sequence of sound design without using any of the sounds that were recorded on set and michael mann got the cut back from them and he watched the sequence and he's like what happened to all the sound it used to I, I remember it sounding like really great when we filmed it why does it sound like this and then being unhappy with the sound design of the sequence he looked into it and was like, you know what? It sounded so incredible on the day when we recorded live. Let's just throw all that in there. And so he decided and he worked with the sound team, redesigned the audio for that sequence, used all of the live round firing that they recorded day of, put it all back into the scene. And that's why it sounds like that. So it wasn't Foley arts, not sound design. The and Ironically, I mean, the sound team redid it all. And they made it sound like a completely different thing and clearly probably had no impact at all. And it was he made the smart choice of like, you know what? Because I saw it was in an interview I saw and he said, I remember he said, I remember on set it's sounding incredible. And it's this sounds nothing close to that. So that's why they changed it. He also directed the actors portraying the police to aim deliberately and only fire their rifles in the semi-automatic mode. This showed that the police were taking care not to hit bystanders. By contrast, the robbers, concerned only with their own safety and survival, 
fire their weapons on full automatic, spraying and striking several bystanders in the process. And they also created real bullet holes in all in the vehicles. And it wasn't on set they were doing it, but they took a lot of the vehicles and they brought them to a firing range and they actually unloaded with them with real rounds. They just unloaded onto the vehicles. So you could, there were realistic looking bullet marks and holes and dents in all the vehicles. And then when, when they got to set, they brought all these damaged cars onto set, painted them and covered them with squibs in all the holes. And so on, on screen, a squib will pop and it looked like it was clean and pristine and, and at first. But then when the squib pops, it reveals this realistic looking gun hole because it was most of them were real. They just did them beforehand. And then it was just like a brilliant way because some of the so many movies where you watch gunfires or bullets hitting things like walls or things like vehicles. It just doesn't really sometimes look that realistic. But with this film, you can see like the metal of you can see the carnage of of gunfire on metal walls and on the vehicles doors and stuff you just feel like you can see the metal has just been like broken out and like like stretched apart you know what i mean it's just like it it added to it like seeing these close ups and these cars laced with all of these horrific amounts of destruction really made a difference combined with the sound was just remarkable so it was just such a smart decision to be like let's just do it for real cover it up throw squibs on them and then it'll look super real. And what's really incredible is when you're watching this movie and this scene specifically, you don't know who to root for. You're like rooting for the robbers for a while. Then you're like, should I really be rooting for them to get away? I mean, they're murderers and they're stealing. They're from killing this people. Yeah. But they, it's done so well that it's you can't help but root for them to get out of the situation. And and I love how they they think they're getting away on the score. And they would have gotten away if it wasn't for the CI giving them the information and giving them the the tip on the bank. And fortunately, they're close enough to just drive up and just the the tense moments of them getting an escape, getting all the money. Which is I love the sequence of Val Kilmer just lifting all the cash up into the bag. I love it how how heavy they're showing it, and then also he slices through the plastic bag to be able to loosen the cash up. Like that's such great attention and detail. And I, I every time he does that, I'm like I, I'm always like fucking love that. And when he shot. tosses the bag and it slides, and yeah. Michael Mann gets to the close up on the ground. I freaking love that shot it's too. So good, it's man. incredible. It's but so then good. they're getting out there in the car, they're getting away. But then they're running up the sidewalk, hiding behind the cars, and then shit hits the fan. And they open up, and then this incredible gunfight ensues, and they're going down the streets, and they're being surrounded by police officers, and they make it far enough, but the driver, Donald, gets taken out, they crash, and they got to get out of there. Now they're chasing out on foot, just going their own paths. Never seen anything like it. It's never going to be replicated or even matched ever in a, in a shootout in a movie, I don't think. Because they made LA, downtown LA, a war zone. It was a war zone, and nobody will ever do that again to actually practically shoot something like that there. It'll always be done with green screen nowadays. It'll always be done with sound stages, lots of CGI. And there's something just really special about these older films, which is why I always gravitate towards them, to actually is to be in their streets that we've driven on hundreds of times and we're very familiar with and we recognize them. But to see that be turned into a war zone, it's not just like some desert plain for a war film or some like whatever different landscape or environment for a war film. Like to see a metropolitan area that you're very familiar with be turned into like this war torn place battle, this it's just mind blowing and there really is nothing like it on this scale at all. It's incredible, and that's why Christopher Nolan loves this film so much and the influences all over his filmography, specifically 
The Dark Knight, 100%, that entire movie, whenever you watch it. And now, every time, when I was watching Heat the whole time, I was thinking of scenes and shots from oh, The yeah, Dark yeah, Knight. Yeah. Everything I'm seeing is just like, it's such a great reference. And clearly, the impact of this film will live on forever and still in so many people's favorite movies, they don't even realize it. I think that Michael Mann is an extremely underrated filmmaker and not often talked about. And I don't, I'm not sure that his films have reached younger generations outside of maybe this movie, maybe Collateral, possibly. Uh, it's a shame because his movies are really special. Uh, I think Thief is really fabulous, and then Manhunter is such a cool movie. But this movie really is, in, in the crime genre, outside of mafia movies, like some of the best, I would say, are mafia movies, but outside of those, I would call this the best crime film ever. Honestly, like this in Chinatown outside of the mafia, I think are like the two best crime films. Best cops and robbers movie. Of oh, all yeah. Time. This is without a doubt the peak, like apex mountain of cops and robbers. Heist movies heist is probably movies. the best one. I mean, it defined the genre. You could see its influence, not just on Nolan, but every other film that does heist. Like we were watching it yesterday and I was like, is it pointless to even want to make a heist film? Because Michael Mann did it so perfectly in every respect, like every shot, every sequence, Everything about it, so is, deliberate. Yeah, it's it, it's so perfect. And like how you can't, you there's it's impossible to top any moment of any of the heists or robberies or action sequences of this film. It's untoppable and untouchable. So I was like, what's the point of even trying to make a heist movie? You still have fun no, yeah, yeah. A heist I, I was just I was just kidding. You don't but, have to make the best. Yeah, but I was like, he that's that's how good this movie is, in my opinion. That it, it's so perfect that it's untouchable in the genre. In the third act, and the climax is terrific. Where Neil cannot walk away from vengeance and getting revenge and killing Wayne Grow on his own. What a badass. Because he really has two modes. He's either cold and calculating and introverted and quiet and calm, or he is the baddest dude on the planet, and you don't want to get in his way. You don't want to get on his bad side. He will take you out without hesitation, like he does to Van Zant, and then what he does to Wayne Grow, which, again, he's so calculated and brilliant, even just on the cuff, improvisation, sneaking into a hotel, calling the room service about a BLT that somebody ordered to yeah. get a room number, getting into a security outfit, knowing the ins and outs of a business like this, then getting up and knowing that he's under surveillance, only have my back to the camera and back to the to the doorknob, the, the, the eye hole and everything like that. So clever. How, how influential do you think this movie is on video games? Massively. So think of just GTA, Hitman, uh, so many other video games. It's like a mission in one of those games. You so know it's what like I mean? a rampage. Yeah, like GTA, they're all just like Scarface meets Heat. Kind of, yeah. In a lot of ways. Rampage and, movies. And, yeah. Rampage missions. <laughs> but like this is like a mission in a GTA movie. Neil's going on a mission. Oh, he's got like five stars yeah. in the shootout. Oh, five, oh yeah, five <laughs> stars. Yeah. But I mean, it, this film, it's not just influential on cinema and the crime genre after the fact, but also I think very heavily influential on video games, especially video games in the crime genre. Where you're a criminal, where you're doing unsavory things and enacting violence and carrying out crimes. Like, this is so influential. I think Scarface gets the most attention, especially for it. But Heat, without a doubt, is super influential to the to those, to those that uh, industry. And it's because Scarface is so much flashier. Yeah, it's got more pizzazz. And, the th and then the, the climax of this movie is incredible where, I, again, I brought up that six and a half minutes of no dialogue. It's just this chase into the, from the hotel to the airport and then running through these this in front of giant planes and huge pieces of set that are real parts of an airport and 
Michael Mann is so patient with the sequence, and he does it by and he builds so much tension with it. Where you're just he's Neil's just trying. I mean, Vincent's trying to track Neil in this dark area, and they're both using the the heights of their wits. And it's eventually Vincent taking advantage of the lights whenever a plane's about to land that he's able to see the shadow of Neil in the well, distance. Ne- well, Neil Neil's planning to take advantage of them by mm. blinding Vincent with the lights behind him that would pour on Vincent's face, but Vincent. Like you said, he sees the shadow, and that's what gives Neil away. Like, Neil was not expecting that. That's actually oftentimes how hunters will look for an animal, to look for the shadow. But it takes six and a half minutes to get to that point of silence, of them just following, of Vincent following Neil in the dark. And then he holds his hand as he dies. Like, they make a connection. And Told you it's I wasn't like, going back. It's emotional. Like, I get, I get goosebumps in, like, every time I watch that, where they're just holding, he just grabs his hand and then... He just, it's like they're kind of like kindred spirits in a way. Even though they're enemies, they do have a connection. And, and Vincent just just holding his hand while Neil bleeds out and takes his last breaths. And then the the, the synths and strings are rising. And oh my God, it's just, it's such a fantastic ending. And I like how that's the ending. Like there's no after the fact, there's no like prologue, I mean, epilogue or what have you. It's just like Neil dies, Vincent cut to black it's just fantastic it's great because they both knew that it was going to end one of them getting taken out and i think the holding of the hand is to show that they both understood that they both respect each other and they both know that they were walking into this facing that potential problem that potential death of either one of them and it's tough to to face your death and they were doing it together in a way, and one of them was going down. But they're either way, they were going to do it together. They foreshadowed it in the diner, in the restaurant scene for sure. Absolutely, it's an incredible ending. It really is, man. I, I fucking love this movie. <laughs> I love it. I told you I wasn't going back. I told you I wasn't going back. <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. I fucking love Heat. <laughs> <laughs> I got some more fun facts if you oh, want to hear I them. Bro, I fucking love fun facts. We're <clears throat> dropping so many f bombs today. This has been a fun episode. Yes. <laughs> In the director's commentary, Michael Mann noted that Al Pacino improvised the line because she's got a great ass, like you said before. Hank Azaria later confirmed it, saying that Al Pacino's unexpected outburst scared the hell out of me, and he actually genuinely just terrified me. And that's what, and so his look of shock in the scene was not at all acting. Interesting. The coffee shop scene sold Robert De Niro on the idea of making the film, he, Al Pacino, and Michael Mann later admitted that it was the scene they were most excited to film. I like that. I like that a lot. One second. Because it's like, oh, it's a heist yeah. movie. There's been a hundred of those, but how is this one different? Yeah. Let me tell you about this one scene, Robert. I think you might like it, Bobby. Wayne Grow tells the bartender that he spent time at Folsom State Prison and then at SHU which is Special Handling Unit at Pelican Bay. Pelican Bay State Prison is where California houses the most dangerous of its most dangerous prisoners, and the SHU is solitary confinement. According to Danny Trejo, Val Kimmer, who was still filming Batman Forever during the filming of Heat, told him on set that he had just refused an offer of $40 million to reprise his role as Batman in a sequel film because he did not want to waste his talent wearing a mask. Damn, $40 million. That's crazy. Holy crap. It was the highest grossing film of the year, so that makes sense. During during pre-production, 
weapons trainer Mick Gold related a story from his time in the British Army. While on a patrol in Northern Ireland, his Land Rover was ambushed, and he returned to fire straight through the vehicle's windshield. This inspired the scene where Neil fires through the windshield of the getaway car during the bank shootout. That's such a badass sequence where... This is where Van Zant's trying to take Neil out. At yeah, it that happens drop in, off. In, in that in the drop off and in the bank scene. And then they're yeah. like bouncing. Where yeah. Vince, I mean, Neil's driving his car and he's bouncing. And he's firing a gun at the same time out the windshield. It's crazy that he did that in real yeah. life. He's like, oh, I, this crazy thing happened. Yeah, it's put in the fucking movie. It's, it's <laughs> awesome. That's a great scene. And then Tom Sizemore comes out with the shotgun. It just unloads on the guy driving the truck. It's yeah. crazy. Man, what a scene. Even that's just, it's a small sequence, but still that's just better than the majority of action scenes we get nowadays. 100%. Like, not even, like even that just is like the fourth coolest action scene in this movie. It's better than most. Still, the opening heist is incredible. The opening, the opening heist I, is I love so it. well done. The practical filmmaking, smashing that truck the into editing. the armored oh car to slide it sideways. I believe they they weighted the truck in, tier, in, the, in the inside different ways to be able for it to flip sideways. Again, it's really similar to that 18-wheeler flip in The Dark Knight where they had to figure out how to do that because... Chris Nolan clearly was so influenced by Michael Mann's filmography and specifically with Heat with making that movie. There would be no Dark Knight without Heat. This movie is incredible. We, we owe so much to Michael Mann. Yeah, I, I, love, I love Michael Mann and I love his movies. He's really uh, an unbelievable filmmaker and one of the best American filmmakers of all time. Where's he the really key? Is. What key? <laughs> Let it bleed. <laughs> Let it bleed. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you got anything else? No, that's all. All right, that wraps our episode on Michael Mann's 1995 classic crime thriller, Heat. What's your rating out of 10? Fucking 10, bro. I got 11 out of 10. 10 out of 10. I don't care about that green screen shot. Fuck it. Whatever. Fuck it. Fuck it. (laughs) They don't make them like this anymore. No. They really don't make them like this anymore, and I miss it. But we still have them to look back on anytime we want. Heat's incredible. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. We also hope that if you hadn't seen Heat in a long time, you gave it a rewatch before watching this or after listening to this episode just to go back in time and just escape into a classic from the 1990s because we love this movie so much. Thanks for tuning in to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Again, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. It really is the very best way to support our show and to help Anthony get his Trader Joe's every week. (laughs) Take care, everybody. (laughs) See you next time. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well. Notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere. You can listen to podcasts and be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.